no great love for you, your planet, your culture. Despite that, Mr. Spock and I are going to go out there and quite probably die in an attempt to show you that there are some things worth dying for. Bridge to Walt X. Time for a new episode of Enterprise Incidents with Scott and Steve. I'm Scott Nance. And I'm Steve Morris. And I feel like we've reached almost a culmination as we've gone through so many incredible episodes. And now we are at Errand of Mercy. Errand of Mercy, which is an episode I know you have a lot to say about it. (laughs) I have a lot to say about it. But the irony is that neither one of us would have had anything to say. If, in fact, The Devil in the Dark would have been the last episode produced for the first season, because that's the way it was looking. And it wasn't until NBC reached around to the producers of Star Trek, to Desilu, and said, hold it, we want four more episodes. And Gene Kuhn, Dorothy Fontana, Bob Justman, Roddenberry all had to scramble in a way to come up with four more episodes to do. And then NBC scaled it back to only three episodes. One of those episodes was Harlan Ellison's The City on the Edge of Forever, which he has been working on forever. But Gene Kuhn, like the fastest writer in the West, now came up with his second produced teleplay in a row, his second original produced teleplay in a row. Like he did not rewrite anyone. He came up with this on his own, another provocative episode. So before we get into like the details of all that, how do you feel about Errand of Mercy so soon after our conversation of A Taste of Armageddon, which Gene Kuhn heavily rewrote? Uh, What's so amazing to me, I always knew that there was episodes that were thematically similar, but now I'm starting to think about them in the same way we've been thinking about with our characters as connected. And so I think it is absolutely fascinating, and I won't explain why I think it's fascinating until we get a little further down into the show. (laughs) Well, what I'll say about Errand of Mercy is this is an episode I've always loved. Uh, Yeah, me too. I've always always loved this episode, but it's not an episode that I've watched a whole lot. I don't know why, because there are other episodes that I love and I watch, like I would say, on a weekly basis, like, like the Doomsday Machine. I watch that episode all the time. But Errand of Mercy, it wasn't until looking at it in a different way, like we've looked at every episode on Enterprise Incidents, but especially after the conversation from A Taste of Armageddon, and it occurred to me why I did not watch this episode a whole lot over the years, and it was an epiphany that I had while rewatching it to prep for our deep dive. But do you remember like around when you might have sort of seen this for the first time, what your early thoughts were back in the day? Um, I, I really don't remember when I saw it for the first time, as I said before. I've always really liked it. And what I think I always loved about it is it has two things that shouldn't work together but do. One is it's a great adventure with Kirk and Spock on their own being Kirk and Spock in the best possible way. And they're totally wrong. I agree. I was going to say, you said in the best possible way, and I was going to say, or the worst possible way. Yeah. <laughs> now, of course- well, I shouldn't say, they're actually not totally wrong. You know, that's, what's, that's part of what's interesting about this episode. They are not the most evolved people here. But they think they are. But they think they are. Right. And that, that is a, a problem that we face 
in our side society today, which makes this episode just as relevant in 2021 as it was in 1967 when it aired, when it aired on March 23rd, 1967 to be exact. So Aaron Mercy, Steve, was the 26th episode of Star Trek to air. And when it aired on March 23rd, 67, it was the only time that this episode aired on network television. Wow. This was not picked to rerun, which is kind of strange because it is such a landmark episode because it is the very first appearance of the Klingons who, as everyone knows, uh, to this very day have such a, has, are, are still such, such great characters. And it all started really with this episode, particularly with, with Cork played by uh, John Colicos. But so Aaron DeMercy was actually the 28th episode to film and it was filmed over six days. So it was on schedule. Uh, filmed between January 26 and February 2nd, 1967. So like I said, written by Gene Kuhn and his second produced teleplay in a row right after Devil in the Dark, directed by John Newland. And it cost, it went under budget, under budget by almost $10,000 because the per episode budget by the end of the first season was $185,000 per episode, which right. seems like a joke. But this one came in at $175,527. The music was tracked, which did save uh, money. Uh, but there are so many things I do love about this episode. Uh, you know, you'd seen Kirk and Spock in action in ways that, that I admire and not admire, but also the chemistry between William Shatner and John Colicos as core. And the, the way that Gene Kuhn addressed the Cold War in A Taste of Armageddon, now he's addressing Vietnam and ironically Afghanistan in Errand of Mercy. And one of the things I did notice about Errand of Mercy is that with each passing episode that was produced by Gene Kuhn, we're seeing Kirk much more uh, aggressive, uh, much more like a, you know, he says, uh, I'm a soldier, not a diplomat. And that's, that is right on point. He, I feel like the way Gene Roddenberry uh, produced the Kirk episodes, Kirk was more of an explorer, but Gene Kuhn made him more of a warrior. I think that's definitely true. And I think, I think there's something gained and lost in that situation. So Aaron of Mercy was directed by John Newland. This is the one and only episode that John Newland directed. And it was Gene Kuhn's idea to have John Newland on board. Now, as an actor, John Newland is an Emmy nominee for TV's Robert Montgomery Presents. And he was also a cast member on the series One Man's Family. But John Newland is best known as the director and host of 96 episodes of a show called Alcoa Presents, which oh. was a supernatural anthology series that later became better known as One Step beyond oh wow remember one step beyond yeah. i mean i didn't watch it i mean i watched the twilight zone the most and right. i watched outer limits second not nearly as much as the twilight zone one step beyond is like a big step down from there okay well yeah one step beyond is one big step down yeah. but uh, what most people don't realize is that one step beyond beat the twilight zone to the punch by a year wow so even though twilight zone and rod serling became better known uh, and people refer to John Newland as the other Rod Serling. John Newland actually came first. Hmm. But he also directed TV episodes of Thriller, 
Dr. Kildare, Peyton Place, Policewoman, and 18 episodes of the 1970s revival series, The Next Step Beyond. And he did such a great job with Aaron DeMercy, especially because he came in almost $10,000 under budget. And he did want to direct Star Trek again, but he always had other commitments that prevented him from doing so. Like I said, Aaron DeMercy was written by Gene Kuhn, another teleplay by Gene Kuhn in which the writer was the only person who, who worked on it from outline to final draft. Uh, he came up with his story outline in the middle of December 1966, went to first draft late December, went to his second draft teleplay on January 3rd, 1967. His revised final draft teleplay came in on January 23rd, only five weeks after the outline, which is uh, actually pretty, pretty fast. Well, it's not just pretty fast because, and, and I just want to take a moment to admire people who can write fast because I am not one of them. I, I, I have a buddy who will knock out a screenplay in a weekend, you know, and I'll be working on the same screenplay for a year. Um, but it's what makes it even faster. It's not like he wasn't doing other stuff. The guy was producing a television show. That's a full-time job. And he had just written, he did Devil in the Dark right before this. So like he is managing to knock out a, a new teleplay while doing all of this other stuff. That is amazing. It is amazing. And by on top of everything that you just mentioned, Steve, he was also rewriting other teleplays written by other people. And the key to his speed was speed. He would take amphetamines. I was, literally was going to ask that question. Yes. Uh, so he was definitely, he definitely got a bit of a boost here. Um, and he also smoked like a chimney, uh, which is why he uh, passed away in the mid seventies uh, from, from lung cancer. But uh, Gene Kuhn, I, I really wish for one thing, he was around to see the fruits of his labor, especially right. when like the whole convention thing, you know, kicked in and then, then the movies and then the other shows. But also I just would love to have seen an like an interview with him, like an actual on-camera interview where he was talking extensively about his contributions to Star Trek because he was only really a part of it for a year, starting from the middle of the first season to the middle of the second season. But uh, well, this if, is definitely if, another, I would say, Another Gene Kuhn classic. Agreed. Well, I, if we're going to fantasize about an interview that never happened, I'm going to fantasize that the person conducting that interview would be Scott Mance. I would absolutely have done anything to have interviewed Gene Kuhn. And, and I love that we are able to talk to people who, who did work with Gene Kuhn. Like, right. I mean, talking with Ralph Sinetsky about uh, the side of paradise and now, this side of paradise was not uh, an episode that that Gene Kuhn wrote, but you know he certainly produced it. But the second episode that Sinetsky directed was absolutely a Gene Kuhn classic that he wrote, and that is Metamorphosis. So I cannot wait to do a deep dive on that episode. Absolutely. Would you like to know some of the things going on in the world? Can't wait. So here, one of the interesting things that's happening is that, in a weird way. It's like we're looking at the paper every week. And so while some stories are one-time events, we're also seeing other stories evolve. And one of the things we've been talking about over the last several weeks has been the growing tensions between Israel and Syria, and that Syria had launched attacks into Israel, and Israel had not wanting to escalate, had not attacked back. And on January 25th, Israel and Syria met to establish a demilitarized zone. They allowed farming and grazing on both sides without harassment. So we managed to resolve this conflict without having it escalate, which of course ties into 
a lot of the episodes that we've been dealing with right at this very moment. Absolutely. And I almost wonder if Gene Kuhn, like if that's part of what he's thinking about, because he's probably looking at the, you know, Walter Cronkite or looking at the paper and seeing some of the things that are going on. Um, on January 26th in England, the House of Commons voted to nationalize the steel industry. And on January 27th, something happened that we've been talking about quite a bit, which is a tremendous tragedy, which is the fire on Apollo 1, which killed astronauts Gus Grissom, Ed White, and Roger Chafee. Um, and what happened was they were preparing for the launch. It wasn't the launch day. The launch day wasn't scheduled for another month. And at the time, they used pure oxygen in their pressurized That's suits, right. which, of course, mm -hmm. is really flammable. And there was a short circuit and a little spark, and it ignited the flash fire. And they tried to open the door. It was Ed White who tried to open the door, and it was not. They were not able to open it from the inside, and they burned to death. It just sounds absolutely terrible. They grounded the Apollo program for 20 months, and, in ch and the changes they made included not running on pure oxygen, but having an oxygen-nitrogen at atmosphere, which is what we normally breathe, and a door that you could open from the inside. The, fa the fact that they had the Apollo 1 fire and the fact that it was the, the Apollo program was on hold for 20 months and that they were still able to meet John F. Kennedy's deadline of yeah. landing a man on the moon by the end of the decade. Uh, but uh, it did, you know, the sort of go fever did take its toll by the loss of those three, those three, yeah. those three astronauts. And, uh, you know, like when you really get into how, uh, how fast they were going, the astronauts, everyone knew, everyone just had this feeling that the Apollo spacecraft was not built well. Right. And it and it showed because they had this fire, but uh, that it happened during this week. And like on January 28th, everyone's driving to work to film a Star Trek episode right. and they're hearing on the news everything about the Apollo 1 fire. That must have been something. It, it really must. I mean, it, it's so funny having read the, the right stuff and having we actually did that film on the cinephiles. The level of the risk to test pilots at that time, it was like uh one in four, a one one out of three died testing planes. So like, even though from our perspective, I mean, obviously this is a terrible tragedy, but like the record of NASA is really, really good compared to what the records of testing out jets was at that time. NASA, uh, you know, I, I, when, when the Apollo 11 documentary came out mm -hmm. uh, in, you know, a couple years ago yeah. and should have won best documentary at the Oscars, but it wasn't even nominated. So I spoke with a someone who worked at Mission Control, a woman uh, who worked at Mission Control on uh, on Apollo Eight, and uh, she said that that they got very lucky. Yeah, they got very lucky that more people, more lives were not lost during that period of time. It makes sense. Well, tragically, actually, just a couple of days after that, on January thirtieth, there were two more airmen killed in a very similar manner, which is there was a flash fire spread by pure oxygen. In a, in a space cabin simulator. And there were two guys, Airman Second Class William F. Barley and Third Class uh, Richard G. Harmon, and they were just doing maintenance. And they got trapped in this cabin with pure oxygen and died. Wow. And it's just, I never knew about it before. And it's just so tragic that this is literally a couple of days after uh, the Apollo 1 disaster. At the same time, the US and the Soviet Union signed an outer space treaty jointly agreeing not to use space or the moon for military purposes. And by 2008, 99 countries had signed this. 
And what's weird is this is topical now because, of course, and, I, and not wanting to get political about it all, but we've just created a new branch of the military, which is the Space Force, where we are now in, you know, have abandoned this treaty. And it, part of it is because of tensions with China and with Russia. And but now we are starting to militarize space. Yeah, we um, are, aren't we? <laughs> we are. On January 30th, the United Nations signs protocols for how to handle refugees and what are the rights of refugees. And again, still dealing with today, literally, there are articles in the newspaper today about refugees from Afghanistan and how are we, what are we going to deal with them? Um, and on uh, February 2nd, the American Basketball Association was formed with 10 new franchise teams. Wow. Yeah. Any, any, any uh, franchise teams that are still around today? Oh, a bunch of them. Yeah. Oh, and I, cool. I don't have them on my list. And of course, I'm not a huge sports guy. And I'm sure, like, I'm sure John Roca right now is, you know, screaming that, of course, this one and this one and this one, because he would know all that stuff. Right, right, sure. I don't. <laughs> I had asked you about one of the first times maybe that you saw Errant of Mercy, and I can tell you the first time I saw it. Oh, right. Because it was actually at a Star Trek convention. Really? So, so even though I was lucky to be watching the original Star Trek series in its original form, uncut, all 50 minutes. In episode order, when I was growing up in the 70s, but there were a few episodes that were not part of the rotation for some reason. One of them was Errand of Mercy. So I was at a convention in the late 70s in downtown Philadelphia at the Philadelphia Center Hotel is the name of the place at 17th and JFK in downtown Philly. And they showed Errand of Mercy. It was, you know, on real, real film. Right. And uh, it was the first time I had seen this episode and the room was full of other Star Trek fans. So some of the levity that we see in this episode, and we'll get to, and you know probably what I'm talking about before we yeah. get there, uh, some of the lighter moments that we see, it was really kind of fun watching this episode for the first time and having the reaction of fellow fans in the room. So I remember yeah. that vividly. And whenever I watch Aaron Mercy and I get to those moments, I think back to when I was a kid, and I saw this episode for the first time at a convention. That was awesome. How, how old were you? you? Oh, geez. I must have been like 11. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I was That's definitely cool. young. I so, Like I said, I only went to one convention before we just went to the one in Vegas. And it was when I was about that age. And it was a comic book Star Trek convention. And I remember being in the room when they were showing the film of the blooper reel. And I saw the blooper reel for the very first time with all the other Star Trek fans all laughing together. And there's just something... There, there, cool there is that. a moment in the blooper reel oh, that, from this from this nice. and we'll get to it <laughs> um well let's get into it let's get into it we both guessed right negotiations with the klingon empire on the verge of breaking down starfleet command anticipates a surprise attack gene coon came up with the name the klingons and dorothy fontana who was the story editor best known as DC Fontana, who wrote episodes like Tomorrow's Yesterday and This Side of Paradise, said, Gene Kuhn came up with the Klingons, though we never liked the name. We said, Gene, can't you come up with a different sounding name than Klingon? We hate it. It was odd sounding, but it must have stuck because they're still using the name Klingon. Agenia's description, inhabited by humanoids, very peaceful, friendly people, Living on a primitive level, little of intrinsic value, approximately class D minus on Richter's scale of cultures. <laughs> it's like the Richter scale of culture. That's a weird. Yeah, he, he's <laughs> but we're establishing 
before we've even got to Organia and seen the Organians, they're setting up that they are at a much lower level technologically than the Federation and probably the Klingons. In much the same way that Vietnam was not as technologically advanced as the United States or Russia. And Kirk says this thing that's really interesting is he says, Another Armenia. Which, when I was a kid, I didn't know anything about Armenia. It wasn't something we were really taught in school. The weak innocents always seem to be located on the natural invasion routes. And this is definitely true throughout history. Afghanistan being an example of a country that was strategically important at different eras for different reasons. And that country has gone through a lot of tragedy because of it. And having said that, watching Errand of Mercy now, uh, I think of it as you know, so relevant because of, of Afghanistan, which for many, many, many years, it was because of Vietnam. Captain, the automatic deflector scheme just popped on. Body approaching. And then immediately we're hit. We're right into the middle of an action sequence. In an effort to save money, when Gene Coombe was writing the teleplay for Errand of Mercy, he actually said in the teleplay, he actually referenced using stock footage of the attack on the Enterprise from Balance of Terror mm. so that they could save money and not have to worry about building a Klingon ship. It's, it, the interesting thing, Steve, is that we saw the Romulans first in Balance of Terror, and we saw the Romulan Bird of Prey designed by Matt Jeffries. But the Klingons, especially over the years, have become like the dominant you know, I would say enemies, but it, but if they're after the original series, they're not the enemy. But we didn't see a Klingon ship until the third season, even wow. in like Trouble with Tribbles and in uh, a private little war. We hear about a Klingon ship, but we never actually see it. But the interesting thing is that for the remastered versions of the original series, we actually do get to see Klingon battlecruisers firing on the Enterprise. And even though it's such a brief moment, it, it still is another example of an episode that I think is elevated because we actually get to yeah. take advantage of some special effects and some CGI and actually see the Klingons firing on the Enterprise. And uh, the Enterprise fires back and we win. <laughs> you know, yeah, we get <laughs> Cut to the chase. We've destroyed them. Well, we've been anticipating an attack. I'd say what we've just experienced very nearly qualifies. Yes, it would seem to be an unfriendly act. And then right after that, we hear a message from Starfleet Command Code 1. Well, there it is. War. We didn't want it, but we've got it. And uh, the delivering the message from Uhura, that is the only time we hear a woman speak in this episode. Wow. So after Devil in the Dark, in which there were absolutely no women featured at all, uh, you have another episode, another episode written by Gene Kuhn, in which uh, women are not feature prominently at all. And the memo that I read from Gene Roddenberry in Devil in the Dark to Gene Kuhn about saying, hey, we need to establish basically some gender balance here, that came after this episode was filmed. So uh, unfortunately, it is another episode that falls way short in gender balance. Well, and you think of what gender balance probably meant in 1967 and Something, what it means today. It means like, yeah, 5%, just yeah. any anything in there as yeah. opposed to like, we're a long way from getting towards 50-50. Um, and then Spock's line is, I think, so prescient and so important because he says, Curious how often you humans manage to obtain that which you do not want. Absolutely prescient. But then Kirk is like, well, we got a job to do. Denying Organia to the Klingons. And I love the line as we end out the teaser. He says, the Trigger's been pulled. We've got to get there before the hammer falls. Ahead, Wolf, back to seven. That is great writing. 
It is. It really is. Act one, we've reached Organia. We hear that the Klingon fleet is on their way. By going down to the planet's surface, you will be in command. Your responsibility is to the Enterprise, not to us. Is that clear? Perfectly, sir. The Klingon fleet is in this quadrant. If they should emerge... And Sulu, with a fair amount of Kirk swagger, I would say, says... We'll handle them, sir. And I like how Kirk says, you will evaluate the situation. But, uh, can No buts. You'll get to safety and alert the fleet. You will not attack alone. Mr. Spock and I will be all right. And by the way, the title, Errand of Mercy, it's such a fitting title for this episode, but it actually comes from the Charles Dickens classic, The Life and Adventures of Nicholas Nickleby. From the quote, it is an errand of mercy which brings me here. Pray, let me discharge it. Oh, I did not know that. That is a Dickens I have not read. One thing about Sulu, I would say, is I think Kirk's rules are so much do what I say, not what I do. You know, because Kirk's always going off against a whole army. In Taste of Armageddon, he's taken on the whole planet. Here, he's taken on the whole Klingon army by himself. But he's telling Sulu, you run away. Right. Like, yeah, just get the Enterprise yeah, out of here. Don't pull a Kirk, right. is what he's basically <laughs> saying. Because you know what? You're not Kirk. You're yeah. Sulu. <laughs> Mr. Spock, let's you and I pay the Organians a visit. And we are down on the planet. Uh, and it's sort of, uh, I'm sure this is on a back lot somewhere. It is on the 40 Acres back lot from Desilu Studios. And we see Kirk and Spock being down, but we do not see McCoy. And why? Because McCoy isn't even in this episode. This is the third and last episode that does not have McCoy in it. And I got to say, missed opportunity. I agree. How great would that have been to have McCoy down there with Kirk and Spock and to have McCoy challenge Kirk in this episode in a similar matter in which he challenges Kirk in later in the second season's A Private Little War, which was co-written by Gene Kuhn with Gene Roddenberry. I think that would have just added such a great dynamic to have McCoy early on in this episode being like, what are you doing? So if I had been writing this episode, I would have put McCoy in for exactly the reason you stated. And it's possible that I'm wrong. And the reason is, is because, and we'll get to it as we go along. Kirk is so oblivious in this episode. And part of the turn at the end is because of his obliviousness, because he's so laser focused on what he's doing. So if you had had McCoy, it would have given some doubt which would have might have made the turn at the end not as strong. That's a really, really good point. The fact that Kirk is so headstrong to a fault, and we'll get to that Literally in a moment, to a, fault. Yeah, to a major, major fault, makes his comeuppance, his realization, his embarrassment at the end just so much more fitting and appropriate. But, well, we'll, we'll get to that in a second. So here, here's an interesting thing that I never had noticed before. They beam down. And when they beam down, it is entirely empty. There is nobody there. And the second after they appear, suddenly a crowd comes in. And why do you think that is? Because there was nobody there. Because exactly. Because they're, they're doing this entirely for, uh, for Kirk and Spock. This, this entire display of primitive culture is done for Kirk and Spock. Exactly. Yep. Right before they beam down, nobody was there. It was all energy. Yep. Pure energy, just like Spock said. And at the moment that they beamed down, the facade was put up. Now, the fortress and the, the citadel and the village was already there. Well, it's literally a set. Right. I mean, like, that's essentially what they have here is a set of a planet with a village. 
And as they're getting the lay of the land, they see a citadel in the distance. And the citadel that they see in the distance, the citadel that winds up being used by the Klingons for their fortress, is actually stock footage of the citadel of Ferrier in Haiti, which was built in the early 1800s by Haitian resistance fighters to safeguard the island from the French. And it still stands to this day. Wow, that is... I knew it. It's so interesting that they look up and see it, but I never imagined that it's actually a real building in the Caribbean. That's fascinating. It's still there. And right away, Spock is going, this doesn't feel like it matches up to what we were led to believe about this planet. And just as he says this, out comes a man with his arms outstretched. Welcome, reception committee. Seems so. That welcome comes from Aylborn, played by John Abbott. John Abbott, who has long, long history in film and in television, his very first credit was for 1936's The Conquest of the Air. For film, he was uh, in 1942's Mrs. Miniver with Greer Garson and Walter Pidgeon. And on TV, he was in shows, early day shows like a matinee theater and also Perry Mason, The Man from Uncle, Mannix, and Bewitched. So he's, uh, you know, from heavy dramas to lighthearted comedies. I mean, he was in Bewitched, you know. I think he is amazing. Yeah, he's in great. This episode. I and, and the and one of the things I'd like to do as we go along is try to think about this from the Organian perspective. Like what's actually going on with them because I think the Organians are fascinating. I really do. The Organians are absolutely fascinating. I got to say I love knowing the ending because it makes watching the rest of the episode more entertaining when you see the way the Organians are treating the Federation and the Klingons. Yeah. And, and this is, you know, I said that I think Kirk is pretty oblivious. This is the first one. They're on a primitive planet. They beam down into a village and a guy comes out to welcome them. Well, how did he know that they were here? <laughs> it's not possible for him to have known that they were there unless they are something more than what they appear. Well, remember later in the episode when Kirk fires his phasers on the Klingons, you know, the Organians are in their council. And they go, it's begun. Yeah. So they sense everything. Well, so oh, they sensed his presence. And that's why they came out and said, welcome. Of course, that's exactly what happened. My point is that why doesn't Kirk notice that that was weird? But absolutely. You're right. <laughs> he, Kirk is very, very flawed he, he really, in this episode. He is, because you know, we talked about Kirk the Observer in the early episodes. This, is, this episode is the opposite. Yeah, There's absolutely. so many things <laughs> that go by him that he doesn't go, hold on. <laughs> like, this is weird. Um, but uh, Aylborn comes out and welcomes them. He has a little hand gesture, which Kirk, of course, imitates. He introduces himself, introduces Spock. I would like to speak to someone in authority. We don't have anybody in authority, but I am the chairman of the Council of Elders. Perhaps I would do. I think the fact that they don't have anyone in authority is saying something about Organia, is that this is a society of equals. And it's like at this moment, because they say he's temporary head of the, of the council. That's something we hear later. So it's a little clue about what this society actually is. And it's temporary because the council doesn't really exist because there is no authority. There is no sort of chain of command, which is actually an admirable trait to have because the Organians, as we've come to learn, are so far advanced above the humans and the Klingons that they don't need that kind of, of authoritative structure. But for the time being, for the sake of show, that's why he says temporary, something else that goes over Kirk's head. Yep. Why is this temporary? Who else would be in charge? 
But when we finally see, you know, Spock goes off, he has to take some readings. So Airborne takes Kirk into another council, just very similar to sort of the council that we saw in A Taste of Armageddon. Absolutely. And the other thing, again, of Kirk being oblivious, nobody opens those doors. The doors open on their own. Again, we're not in a primitive. This is, there are so many things that happen that you should go, wait. I, what, yeah, what, who opened that? Who opened that door? <laughs> My government has informed me that the Klingons are expected to move against your planet with the objective of making it a base of operation against the Federation. My mission, frankly, is to keep them from doing it. What you're saying, Captain, is that we seem to have a choice between dealing with you or your enemies. And how is that any different from what the Vietnamese had to uh, deal with? How is that any different from Afghanistan? Deal with you or deal with our enemies? It's the same proposition. And both ways are wrong. So here's what I think is because we get different flavors of things in these last bunch of episodes. And what's interesting to me in this one is that it is very clear that Kirk is not wrong in the sense of the description that he gives on the Klingons seems to be accurate. Because that's what the Klingons did. The Klingons' actions reflect the way that Kirk described them. One thing that I found interesting is in all these kinds of, so, so much, this is because this really is also an episode about the Cold War. And so much of the Cold War, there are all of these countries that are torn between alliances with the Soviet Union and alliances with the US. And so many countries where we were in one way or another putting pressure on these governments to side with us, and the Soviet Union is doing the same thing. And that in our descriptions, we would go to that country, whether it was Nicaragua or whether it was Cuba or whether it was Iran or whoever, wherever we sensed that these things were happening, and we would go and say, the Soviet Union is a horrible, evil dictatorship, and you will have no freedoms under them, and they will, you know, imprison people and the, all this stuff. But the Soviet Union was going and saying their spiel about what the U.S. was, that they are a capitalist dictatorship that only wants to use your country for greed and to make money and that they don't care about your citizens at all. And we really do. And the thing is, there's some truth in both of those things. Absolutely, there is. And, and I think that unlike A Taste of Armageddon, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to compare these episodes a lot because sure. I think they are absolutely appropriate companion episodes because of the issues and the themes and the messages. And certainly because they were both uh, written or rewritten by the same person, Gene Kuhn. And so, so the adventures on Meteor 7 uh, were just three episodes ago. Yeah. In that situation, Kirk was under orders to establish diplomatic relationships with the Meteor 7. And he approached the planet, even though he was warned to stay away. And then that whole thing happened. He got mixed up. But when he and the landing party beamed down and he, he tried to appeal to Anon 7 and that council my mission is to open diplomatic relations with you. That was his mission. Now his mission is to keep Organia from being used as a base by the Klingons. So once again, we have a situation where he has to appeal to a council. And I feel like this time around, he once again, he is under orders. He's, he wasn't warned to stay away. In fact, he is welcomed. He is welcomed by Aelborn. Very, very different from, from the warning that he got from Amini R7. But unlike his, I would say, his diplomatic approach to wanting to establish diplomatic relations with Amini R7, as he is appealing to Aelborn and the Council of Organians, he is losing his, 
his patience. Uh, I would say he's even kind of losing his cool a little bit. He's being extremely headstrong. He's being aggressive and he gets frustrated, which while I, I think is it's wrong for Kirk to do that, I think the way Shatner, the way William Shatner plays Kirk in this episode, as much as I don't like a lot of the things that Kirk does in this episode, I think that Shatner's performance is right on point. I mean, Kirk, we are, what we are seeing here and the way that he is trying to get the Organians to take his side over the Klingons, he's so arrogant and so self-righteous that it occurred to me while I was rewatching this episode, I had to really think about it that more than any other episode of the original series, I think this is the episode in which I have liked and admired Kirk the least. I, I think that's certainly arguable. Well, and, and what's so interesting to me is like, what is it about the Organians that makes Kirk mad? And it is their passivity. And they say to him very calmly, We thank you for your altruistic offer, Captain, but we really do not need your protection. And that is all true in a way. And this is what's so interesting is that, you know, spoiler alert, these are unbelievably powerful energy creatures. They've just taken human form to make these humans comfortable. They don't have those forms. And what's so interesting to me is that in a weird way, they're like the parents. They're like the elders. They're so far beyond Kirk because we've met a bunch of powerful people already. We've met the Charlie X people. We've met the Telosians. We've met the Metrons. We've met the Shoreleaf people, which are maybe more technologically advanced. And Trelane. We've, and we've met Trelane. And with the exception of the Shoreleaf people, let's just put them aside, all of them have used their power somewhat aggressively. They've used their power aggressively on the Enterprise. Yeah. The, but not the Organians. Not the Organians. The Organians are different, for sure. Absolutely. First of all, this is what I, why I said that watching the episode, knowing how it ends, makes it more entertaining. Because if you're watching... Aaron de Mercy for the first time, you have no idea who the Uruguayans really, really are. You would f absolutely feel and empathize with Kirk's frustration because they're not seeing the light. This brings me to a, a question that I was going to save for the end, but why did the Uruguayans just like reveal themselves and say, this is why we don't need your help because you are so beneath us and you guys are out of your damn minds. I, I will tell you my answer because I have that in my notes too. Because they have the Prime Directive. And in fact, they really believe in the Prime Directive. They see these species, the humans and the Klingons, as very, very young species that are just figuring things out. And they have decided in a way that they're going to hold to that the last, they say, it is so painful to them to have to interfere. It is so deep in their culture to allow these people to find their own path that they don't want to interfere. And I, and I think there's a sense, and this is, again, trying to watch this from their Guinean perspective, is these are like parents with little kids on the playground, and the little kids don't know how to play well together. Right. They're definitely bickering and fighting, and the parents yeah. are saying, like, enough of this. So what you're saying is that the Organians have a prime directive of their own in which they're, they're holding out from interfering to an extent that they're going to reveal themselves but ultimately, they break their own prime directive by doing that. They do. By the way, that opens, that opens up this conversation to a whole other level. Well, that's why looking at the Organian perspective is so interesting to me. Because one of the other things that's interesting is they essentially almost always tell the truth. 
Kirk is talking about the threat to the planet, and they say, We are a simple people, Captain. We have nothing that anybody could want. But why? Like, like Kirk doesn't ask the right questions. Well, this is the thing, is that there's all these things happening that Kirk is not responding to. And Kirk lays out exactly how bad the Klingons are, and all of that is true, too. Well, all of that is true from Kirk's point of view. And, and I think that even though we see, we eventually do see that the Klingons are obviously different. They definitely have a, an, an aggressive side to them when it comes to rounding up hostages and killing them. But there is also a code of honor to the Klingons that is established in this episode, carried through to the way that the Klingons are written to this very day, that the bar was set in this episode by Gene Kuhn and by John Colicos, who played Kork. Well, here, here's what I would say. So like, we have a lot of episodes where Kirk rushes in, like in Arena, like in Devil in the Dark, where he rushes in and he's wrong. I don't think this is that, because he's seen lots of evidence of what the Klingons do, and we see that the Klingons behave in the way that Kirk expected. Where he's wrong is there's other things going on right now that he's not aware of, and he's wrong because he is rushing to war. But unlike Arena and Devil in the Dark, where he has the epiphany and he shows he shows empathy and compassion. He does that on his own. Yep. That does not happen in this no, episode. That's what's so fascinating. That's why linking all these episodes together, and we'll get to that at the end, but that's what's so interesting to me now as I'm thinking about it in a new way. And, and, and absolutely. I mean, and that's definitely a, one of the reasons why, like, even though Kirk may have been wrong, the fact that he, he realizes his mistake on his own is what makes him so admirable. Not here. And by the way, one other clue that Kirk doesn't pick up on is he's talking about planets and ships and things like that. And the Organians, who are supposed to be a primitive people, aren't going, wait, what now? Like, they're not going, what do you mean planets? What kind of ship? What's a spaceship? They're not asking any of these questions because they understand it all. And Kirk doesn't clue into the fact that that is weird. And what I love is that while he's talking about what's going to happen to them, they are concerned about him. We see that your concern is genuine. We are moved. I think that's an important thing because part of what they're doing is studying the human. So the first thing they know is, okay, he is actually concerned. He is here to try to protect us. But again, we assure you that we are in absolutely no danger. If anybody is in danger, you are. And that concerns us greatly. It's so amazing how this whole time that Kirk is, he, he thinks that he's doing what he thinks is right, what he thinks is right for the Organians. And yet the Organians are saying, hold the phone. Yeah. No, no, no. We're going to do what we feel is right for you. Yep. But they're doing it in a way that he, Kirk just, he just doesn't get it yet. I think the Organians are like the ideal species in a way, is that we take our ideals of peace and companionship and love and freedom and allowing people to be what they are. And that's all the Organians. They have no, they, they are so evolved and advanced because like one of the interesting things there's the uh this is a digression but in uh the brothers karamazov in you know dostoevsky there's a sequence which is the grand inquisitor do you know about this no so what it is is that the idea is in the middle of the inquisition jesus comes back and jesus goes to see the grand inquisitor who is torturing people and killing people who are heretics and he says hey dude that's not how he says it in the book but that's how i'm going to say it he says, hey, dude, that's not what I meant. You're doing all this stuff in my name. This is not, you're not supposed to torture people like I was preaching love and forgiveness and compassion. And the Grand Inquisitor is 100% convinced that this is Jesus. 
He's convinced that he's telling the truth. And so the choice that he makes is to kill Jesus because it would interfere with his power. Interesting. And, uh, and that, of course, I haven't read that book in a long time, so that might be a slightly incorrect uh, interpretation or summary of it. But here's what's interesting. Throughout history, we have always preached these ideals. And then we frequently killed the guys like Gandhi and Martin Luther King, who were the, the embodiment of these ideals is that, in fact, we tend to not like the people that are closer to our ideals. And that is what is happening with Kirk. Is Kirk, what he doesn't like about them is their admirable qualities. But they're, they're admirable qualities, but in what he still sees as a primitive society. So he doesn't know, even though he's about to get a very, very big hint of their powers. And again, it's a something, it's a situation which, you know. Well, wait, hold on. Does our qualities more or less admirable based on how powerful or primitive a, a people are? Say that again. What? Okay. You said he, he doesn't like them because they're admirable qualities. No, no. Well, I, I, forgive me. Uh, I, I, I didn't mean to say he doesn't like them. He's frustrated. He's right. frustrated because he sees himself as the more powerful uh, over, over the Organians. And he is getting very frustrated because he thinks he knows what's best for them. Right. And they are resisting his, his offer to help. Yeah. Well, we're going to go around this issue a bunch, I think, because there's so much about Kirk's reaction to the Organians that is so interesting to me. And in this moment, as he's getting more and more frustrating, he says, and, and I agree with you, by the way, Shatner is on point and he is so great in this episode, despite the fact he's doing things I don't like. You keep insisting that there's no danger. I keep assuring you that there is. Would you mind telling me? It is our way of life, Captain. That's the first thing that would be lost. And then this next line. This next line, which is a great line, says, forgive me. I'm a soldier, not a diplomat. So, first of all. That's not the whole line. I'm a soldier, not a diplomat. I can only tell you the truth. His truth. He says, I can only tell you the truth. Right, but it's his truth. That he doesn't know what the truth really is. But that line, I'm a soldier. So, So, yeah, let's start with I'm a soldier, not a diplomat. I'm a soldier, not a diplomat. See, the fact is. He is a diplomat, but the more recent experiences of, of, of his adventures have hardened him into mm. being a soldier. Certainly the experience with the Romulans, uh, the experience with the Gorn on Cestus III, mm-hmm. and certainly- The Taste of Armageddon. The Taste of Armageddon. He is being hardened into thinking he is a soldier, and he's losing sight mm. of being a diplomat, because in a later episode- in Metamorphosis, when Kirk tries to take a more aggressive tactic, he's reminded by McCoy. McCoy actually says to him, you think of yourself as a soldier so much that you forget that you were also a diplomat. Try waving a carrot instead of a stick. Uh, so first of all, I hadn't thought of it in context the way you just did, which of course is what we do in the whole show, is that one thing affects another thing. I think that's really interesting. Second of all, he's literally going into war. Like war has started with the Klingon Empire. So his, he feels that his role has changed. Something I've been meaning to bring up for a long time, because I don't like that idea, is that what I love about the Starfleet and about Kirk is that we have a complicated mission. Yes, we're trained in a military sense and can be soldiers, but we can be diplomats, we can be scientists, we can be explorers, we can be all of these things. And one of the things I was thinking about, because you'd mentioned, I think, in Taste of Armageddon about how far out the Enterprise usually is. Exactly. And what I was thinking about was Magellan and Columbus and Pizarro and these people where 
the and, and we could have a lot of conversation about whether or not these were good people. I'm not getting into that. But what I what I am saying is that they were soldiers and scientists and diplomats because they were so far away from home that they, you know, they had to negotiate trade treaties and they were making trades. They were doing all of that. And that the enterprise to me is like those ships, which is that they can do a whole bunch of stuff. So Kirk saying, I'm a soldier, not a diplomat. I, I just like, no, you're not just a soldier. You are a soldier, but, you're but not just a soldier. But at the same time, we also are seeing an episode. We're seeing a story here that in which Kirk's role has shifted. Yeah. So the moment in the teaser, when they get the word from the Federation, Starfleet, that it's code one, that they're at war. Now Kirk is a soldier. Yeah. Like his role has shifted. So whether he always thought of himself as a soldier or he more recently thought of himself as a soldier because of these other adventures that he's had with the Enterprise, the fact is right now they're at war and he is a soldier, just like in the way that yesterday's Enterprise, the uh, Next Generation episode, mm. because they're at war with the Klingons, the right. Enterprise is not a ship of peace. It is a battleship. It is right. a warship. The Enterprise is now a warship, and Kirk actually is a soldier. That's the mindset Agreed. that he's in, and he is under orders, and he's trying to be as persuasive as possible. And fact is, this is mostly from the point of view of Kirk and the Federation. Right. Uh, there is a whole other point of view that we are not seeing, at least not in canon, because there actually is a comic book that looks at Errand of Mercy from the point of view of the Klingons, mm. which is very interesting, but it's just not, it's just not canon. But it is such a fundamental shift in Kirk's character because of his adventures and also because of the way, you know, again, the way that Gene Kuhn has rewired these characters in some ways, very, very good, most ways, very, very good. But in this case, or in, in a lot of other cases, you know, because we see these arcs in which our heroes, mostly Kirk, has this realization, again, comes around on his own. This time he doesn't. And he's just so deep into his mindset of the Klingons are bad, we're good, side with us, not them. I think you've really found the key, one of the keys to his behavior, which I hadn't thought about quite this way. But the moment they say we're at war, I think Kirk made a mental shift. Absolutely. You know, and he went, okay, we're at war. And the thing is, you know what Kirk's going to do in a war? He's going to win. That's right. He is going to be a soldier and he is going to and win. He doesn't believe in a no-win scenario. Yeah. I want to I just touch on the second half of this line. I know we've spent 10 minutes on one sentence. <laughs> Welcome to Enterprise Incidents. But the line is, I'm a soldier, not a diplomat. I can only tell you the truth. And why does that line ring to you? Well, I think, it's, I think we could write dissertations on whether or not the military tells the truth. Absolutely. You know, like that's like such a, and what's so interesting is let's pair that with Scotty saying the best di diplomat I know is a fully charged phaser bank. Right. Again, that's a militaristic sort of look. And this is, you know, you go to von Clausewitz of, you know, war is politics by other means. You know, the idea of the relationship of the military to the government. And we're in so many situations. I can name so many places where the military did not tell the truth. And that left us in situations, uh, one of which we literally just got out of with the, by the skin of our teeth, where there was a lot of false, not just from the military, but all sorts of false information about things that were going on. And so like we go into like, I'm a soldier, I can only tell you the truth. <laughs> that is a lot of a line. Yeah. They only tell you the truth. Uh, whose truth are you telling? Yeah. And uh, I think that what we are 
being told about the Klingons and the Klingons that we actually see in some ways it's, it's pretty accurate, but in other ways it's not, especially as we come to learn more about the Klingons, not just from the original series, but certainly by, by the next generation that they are a species of honor and respect. If you will excuse us, Captain, we will discuss your kind offer. And they turn away and whisper as Kirk moves away. And I really wonder, like, what are they talking about? Um, (laughs) And then Spock comes in and basically says, what we thought about these people is totally wrong. This is not a primitive society making progress toward mechanization. They are totally stagnant. There is no evidence of any progress as far back as my tricorder can register. Elgania is a laboratory experiment of an arrested culture. Think about like the, the ramifications of that, of the fact that they have stayed in an arrested culture, unlike Landrew mm-hmm. on Beta 3, which was a, an arrested culture because it was because of a machine. Right, it was controlled. Unlike yeah. the Apple, where Val kept these people stagnant because they were serving him. What is the source of their motivation to stay? status quo and not evolve, or at least not according to the way they think they should be evolving. There's a lot of questions that Kirk should be asking, but well, he's not. Well, and Spock has come to the totally wrong conclusions because the evidence he's examining is the fake village that was created for their for uh, them. For them. Right. But again, we go right to this stuff of things that are totally, totally present in the 60s and totally present today, which is that the Organians turn around, they say, no thank you. We are not in any danger. And Kirk now uses this new information. In addition to military aid, we can send you specialists, technicians. We can show you how to feed a thousand people where one was fed before. We can help you build schools, educate the young in the latest technological and scientific skills. Your public facilities are almost non-existent. We can help you remake your world. This is exactly the offer both the Soviet Union and the United States gave to every single country that we said we wanted to help Absolutely. out. Absolutely. And look how those turned out. Well, and, and did we do the things that we promised to do? Sometimes. Sometimes we didn't. But, <laughs> frequent, but, but yeah. in the end, ultimately, they were the wrong decisions. And it was wrong in Vietnam and it was wrong in Afghanistan. Well, I'm not going to say they're all wrong decisions because there's literally hundreds of countries that we did this with. Whether it was, you know, El Salvador or whether it was South Korea or whether and, and all of them happened like in um, the Marshall Plan, where we said, hey, we're going to help you rebuild. We were, it was great. In Japan, it was great. In other places where we said to the Shah of Iran, you know, you, you take power, you sell your oil to us and we'll help you out in all these ways. Maybe it wasn't so great. Exactly. You know, it, this stuff is, you know, American foreign policy is uh, Keep, complicated. Uh, it's a uh, history keeps repeating itself. Yeah. And I love this line. Kirk says, all we ask in return is that you let us help you now. And the Ocanians say, Captain, I can see that you do not understand us, which is totally true. He has no idea who he's talking to. Kirk's naivete in this episode is it's such a an interesting character trait to behold because it is so unlike him to be so headstrong and so narrow-minded and stubborn and focused the only other time that we saw kirk acting out of character was in the conscience of the king that was because of a very personal experience it's one thing if you are on the brink of war, like you are with the Romulans yeah. and the balance of terror, 
It is another thing if you are interfering in another war like you are in A Taste of Armageddon. But now you are actually talking about a war between the Federation and another race. And it is nothing like Kirk has actually experienced. And like you said, he doesn't know who he's dealing with. So he's, he just hasn't been able to wrap his head around the situation to come around on his own. He's out of his league. Well, he, you know, we've said, we've said this about Kirk many times, is that he will observe, and then when he acts, he will act decisively. Kirk is a person who acts decisively. I wonder two things. One is, I go back to this moment of, okay, we're at war, and he flipped a switch in his brain. The other question that hadn't occurred to me until you were just speaking is, Commander Kor, we find out, was really excited about going up against Kirk. He wanted to meet Kirk in battle. Is Kirk excited? about war? Is some part of him excited about leading the Enterprise into battle? I think that's a great question. I think this plays into kind of the ego that we talked about with Kirk losing his crew in this side of paradise. Mm. Obviously, Kirk loves being in command. He loves the Enterprise. He loves his crew. There has got to be something empowering that Kirk is leaning into. But I don't think ultimately that he wants to go to war. I, I don't no. think that he wants this at all. But like I said, it's that light switch that went off when they said we're at war. Kirk is, a, he's a man of action, but he is also, you know, if there's this war that's now happening between the Federation and the Klingons, he's with the Federation. I'll tell you a personal thing. And then, and then I have a thought about Kirk. The personal thing is I'm not a pacifist, but I'm pretty darn anti-violence. I've also done martial arts for a really, really long time. Yep. Um, and I've broken up a couple fights. I haven't been in a fight as an adult, but I've had the fight fantasy. Do you know what I mean? Like the, what would happen if I actually had to use martial arts and imagined it? And there's something thrilling about imagining a thing that I never want to happen. You know what I mean? And so I'm sure Kirk has been training to bring the enterprise into battle. And thinking about how he would do it. And there is probably a part of him that's like, okay, we're going to do it. We're going to do it. You know, that's one thing. Here's the other thing. Kirk's both of our heroes, right? Yep. Oh, yes. There's so many discoveries we've made about him. One is, you know, obviously we talked about him being a nerd. Another one is I've become so much more aware of the personal sacrifices he's made and the deep sadness that he's carrying with him of not having love, of all the things that he's not going to have in order to be the captain of the Enterprise. It's, it's, so, it's so much more tragic than I thought he was, having, wa having studied this first season. The other thing that's so interesting, he is so much more flawed than I thought he was. Absolutely. I completely agree with that. He's definitely more flawed than I ever really, really absorbed. But it, it was always the fact that he learned from his flaws that I admired. Like I realized like that I, it, it took sort of doing these deep dives episode by episode yeah. deep dives for me to realize that one of the qualities that I've always admired about him, but just never wrapped my head around was his ability to come around yeah, to be in one situation and show empathy and compassion yeah. because he made those decisions on his own, but in errant of mercy, he's so, he, he has these horse blinders on. And he's just not able to see sort of the forest through the trees of the situation. Well, honestly, there's, a, you know, in both Arena and in Devil of the Dark, Kirk gets lucky. If Spock doesn't figure out that those are eggs or is unable to mind meld with the Horda, 
Kirk will kill the Horta. Absolutely. And Absolutely. If, if the Gorn doesn't decide to talk to Kirk, he's been silent the whole time and say, you invaded our territory, Kirk would have killed the Gorn. Well, that's now you're talking about communication. And so, and so there's nothing happens in here that tells him that the Klingons aren't exactly as horrible as he thinks they are. In fact, there's evidence that comes out that they are exactly as horrible Absolutely. as he thinks they are. Absolutely, especially with, with one of the actions that Kor takes later in this episode yeah. with rounding up all 200 uh, hostages. And speaking of Klingons, the whole Klingon fleet has showed up and Sulu is radioing down. He can't beam up Kirk and Spock and Kirk says, get out of here. Follow your orders. Get out of here. And then he turns to the council and says, Gentlemen, you kept insisting that there was no danger. I that hope this is correct, it. Captain. There is no danger. I love this moment. I love this scene because the way it plays out is so chilling and eerie because it is Trefane who, without anything in front of him, says, Eight space vehicles have assumed orbit around our planet. They are activating their material transmission units. And Spock is looking at him, obviously curious, on the verge of saying fascinating. And I love Kirk's response. In a hushed tone, he says to Aylborn, How does he know that? I love this moment because it is the biggest, most glaring hint yet that Kirk is still not grasping of who he is dealing with. Honestly, he's so dumb. Like, there's no reason why Kirk, when he's in the cell with Spock later in some quiet moment, go, hey, Spock, why do you think he knew that stuff? Could they have powers that I don't know about? And it's almost like it just seems so unbelievable to him that they would know this without any kind of technology, any kind of mechanism alerting them to these actual facts that he just can't wrap his head around the fact that these people are so much more powerful than he could possibly imagine. I think that he thinks that it's a trick. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, you know how if you go to, like, I don't believe that people can read minds and there's a show I can go to where someone's going to read a whole bunch of people's minds in the audience. And that is because it is a trick. Or if you go to a seance or if you go to, you know, now there are people out there listening who believe all these things are true. That's great. You get to believe that. But like, in my opinion, a lot of this is shown as bogus and how these tricks work. And so, and I think Kirk has gone like, how did he, you know, what's going on there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, because his mind can't get around the idea that this is for real. One other thing about this, I think it's also evidence that the Organians do not all have the same powers. That this guy is good at seeing what's going on around in the world. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Be- because Elborn says, Oh, our friend Trefane is really quite intuitive. You can rest assured that what he says is absolutely correct. Elborn is also saying to Trefane, like, hang on, they're not ready. Mm. Slow down here. Well, because they're not supposed to reveal themselves. I think right. that's part of their prime directive. And I think that Trefane just kind of, uh, you know, overstepped his boundaries. So we're stranded here. In the middle of a Klingon occupation army. So it would seem. Not a very pleasant prospect. You have a gift for understatement, Mr. Spock. It's not a very pleasant prospect at all. Act two, we see the Klingons marching through the streets. This is our first view of Klingons. And they look very differently from how they'll look later on in Star Trek. And just for the record, it is established that just like humanity has different people who look very different, so do the Klingons. Because that's been the question for like decades. Like, why... 
do the Klingons from Star Trek, the motion picture onwards look so different from the Klingons in the original series. Now, one thing uh, that Dorothy Fontana made an observation about, she liked the Klingons. I mean, not the name, but she actually liked the Klingons. And she thinks that it was more practical for the Klingons than it was for the Romulans because they didn't have to do all the thing with the ears. Uh, right. It was much easier for Fred Phillips to design the Klingons, which, which I'll get to in a second because he actually collaborated with John Colicos about this. Mm. But this is the way the Klingons look in the original series and the animated series. So deal with it. You know, things like that getting hung up on it. It's like, yeah, they decided to change them. You yeah, know? big deal. You like, know. Okay. But in the script, uh, the Klingons were described as, quote, oriental and hard-faced. Okay. And we see that Kirk and Spock are now wearing sort of Organian outfits. And the first thing they ask is, where are our phasers? Did you take them? Yes, Captain. I took them. I must ask you to return them. I'm sorry, Captain. I cannot do that. Were you armed, you might be tempted to use violence, and that we cannot permit. Oh, so the Organians are, are taking a stand. Well, and they're literally, I mean, it's like parents and kids. It's like, I'm taking your stick away. I don't trust you to not hit Johnny with this stick. That is how they're treating them. Yes, the, the, the Organians are definitely the parents, and they're treating the Klingon, they're treating Cora and Kirk like, like kids. You, Captain, will pass as an Organian, and Mr. Spock, Mr. Spock presents a problem. And then Claymare says... A Vulcan trader, perhaps. A dealer in Kivas and Trillium. Harmless to the Klingons. Again, how could this primitive people know about Vulcan traders trading Kivas and Trillium? It's not possible for them to know that. You know, and the fact, the fact that they're, they're supposedly only seeing outsiders for the very first time, yet they know about Vulcans and they know that, the, that their Vulcans are harmless to the Klingons. You're right. Yeah, no, there's no way they can know that. We should continue as before. We have nothing to fear. You have a lot to learn, sir. And if I know the Klingons, you'll be learning it the hard way. Enter Commander Kor, played by John Kalikos. John Kalikos set the bar for every Klingon that followed to this very day one of the very, very best performances from a guest star on any Star Trek series. So it was actually John Colicos who suggested to makeup artist Fred Phillips that Kor should look like Genghis Khan. Hmm. So he also suggested the brown-green makeup, but John Colicos actually came under the recommendation of this episode's director, John Newen, and John Colicos actually got the script two hours before flying to L.A. from Toronto, and he read it on the plane. Obviously, John Colicos is best known for playing Baltar on the original Battlestar Galactica. And he's so great as Baltar in Galactica. He chews his scenery. He's a great foil to Adama, played by Lauren Green. But John Colicos was also seen on TV in shows like Mission Impossible and Mannix. He was the voice of Apocalypse, on the X-Men animated series. Oh. He was in movies like Anne of a Thousand Days and The Changeling. And even though this was John Colicos' only appearance as Kor in the original series, he reprised his role as Kor for three episodes of Deep Space Nine, Blood Oath, The Sword of Kalos, and Once More Unto the Breach. And this was interesting. This I did not know. That even though they wanted Kor to return for The Trouble with Tribbles, and for Day of the Dove. They also wrote an episode 
four core in the fourth season mm. of the original series. Wow. The fourth season that never happened. Wow. He might be my favorite Klingon. See, I, I, I was going to ask you. I was going to ask you, where does core rank, at least in the Klingons from the original series, where does core rank for you? In the original series, he's number one. He's There's number no question one. about it. I'm saying he might be my favorite Klingon. Period. Oh, period. Okay. I love him. I think he's so great. I think he's, he is just, you know, how we talked about uh, how Ricardo Montalban just is stealing every scene he's in and how much fun you can see Shatner have acting with him. It's the same thing here. I don't think he's at the, st- the stature of Ricardo Montalban physically as well, but he's so fun. I, I agree with you. I think that he's awesome. I love John Calico's core, but I have to admit my favorite Klingon of them all. I mean, not including Worf in The Next Generation, because sure. it's a completely different kind of character. And you had many, many seasons between Next Gen and Deep Space Nine and the movies to establish that character. But in terms of guest stars to play Klingons, I got to go with Michael and Sarah as Kang in The Day of the Dove. First of all, he's tall yeah. and he's much more of a physically imposing presence, but he just got that role. Uh, I love Kang in Day of the Dove. I love that episode anyway from the third season. But my question, our question for you, everyone listening to Enterprise Incidents, where does Core rank in your depiction of guest stars who have played Klingons? Where does John Colicos rank? Who is your favorite actor other than Worf to play a Klingon, not just in the original series, but in any series of star trek let us know go to our enterprise incidents facebook page let us know who your favorite Klingon is you, you know what's funny about Worf? and i'll just say real quickly when there's a good episode with Worf, i love him he is awesome and there's so many bad episodes where i hate the way they wrote him but the episode i agree with you the episodes where they wrote Worf the right way and many of those episodes were written by ronald d moore because he really the way that ron moore really uh, evolved the Klingon culture in the next generation, especially from like the third season onward, yeah. was really magnificent. And speaking of Worf, the Baldrick that Kor wore mm-hmm. uh, in this episode was reused by Michael Dorn for Worf in the first season. I of never the next knew generation. that. Yep, same thing, I, same exact one. That is really, That's really cool. cool. Yep. So, Kor uh, sweeps into this room with such arrogance and such style. And he immediately notices Kirk. Ah, absolutely. It's like there's something instinctively about Kirk that Kor gravitates to where he immediately feels this kinship to him, but in ways that he doesn't quite realize yet, just can't grasp it yet. But there's something about him. And uh, the council introduces him as Barona, one of their leading citizens. And he has no tongue. I have a tongue. Good. You will be taught how to use it. And then Kor asks, where is your smile? Well, what? The stupid, idiotic smile everyone else seems to be wearing. Right away, he's pegged Kirk. And then he notices Spock, who introduces himself, as we heard, as a traitor in Kivas and Trillian, whatever that is. And Kor says, take this man. Vulcans are members of the Federation. He may be a spy. And Kirk aggressively says, he's no spy. Like, it's a knee-jerk reaction. And he's protecting his friend. He's protecting Spock. Absolutely. But this is not Kirk at his best. Kirk the trickster is not here. Like, he should be smiling. He should be pretending to be like an Absolutely. Adanian. That's a great point. That is what he should. He is drawing so much attention to himself 
But Kor loves it. Well, have we a ram among the sheep? Here's the interesting thing for me. Kor is way more comfortable with Kirk than he is with the Organians. He doesn't get the Organians. He gets, he's a guy who's used to dealing with dominance. I will dominate you. You will do, we'll be in a struggle for dominance. And that's this macho thing. And that's what Kor is used to. And the Organians aren't giving him any of that. He doesn't know what to do. The interesting thing that I find is that Kirk is more comfortable with Kor than he is with the Organians. He's the same. He can't Absolutely. stand the Organians. Right, right. That's a good point. That's a really good point. I mean, he may not like the Klingons, but he relates to Kor. Yeah. As a, they're on the same level. Yeah. And, and this is sees, my opponent. He yeah. sees Aelborn and the council as being beneath them. He does, no, does not yet realize how far above them the Organians really are. One of the interesting things, so the martial art I do is Aikido, and Aikido is a very gentle martial art. And, the, and the, one of the interesting things about it that I've learned is that part of why it works, when it works, and it's not easy to always make it work, is that people expect when you throw a punch or when you act aggressively towards them, they expect you to act aggressively back or to run away. Fear or counterattack, that's what we expect. And Aikido, you do none of that stuff. You act totally calmly and you try to have a spirit of nothingness, of moo, and you allow whatever happens to happen. And I've watched people's punches just sort of falter because they're not getting what they expect. And that is the Organians. Absolutely. That's a great point. You are now subjects of the Klingon Empire. You will find there are many rules and regulations. They will be posted. Violation of the smallest of them will be punished by death. And Aelborn very gently says, We shall obey your regulations, Commander. And Kirk has given him a hard look. You disapprove, Barona. You need my approval. Here's what's really funny. I think Kirk's making all the wrong choices. I love everything that Shatner's doing. I Every agree, line completely. is amazing. Kor asks, will I have your obedience? And Kirk's response is, You seem to be in command. <laughs> I think that's a key to this episode, is that, as much as I don't agree with Kirk, as much as I feel like he is not the Kirk that I've admired all this time, he is knocked off his perch for the right reasons by the end of this episode and sort of wins back that admiration because of, of the way he embraces it. Right. And I'll get to that. But the way that Shatner plays him is perfect. Well, I mean, honestly, you're having a similar reaction to what I had in Taste of Armageddon. I love everything Kirk does. He's awesome. I just disagree with what he's doing. Right. You know. I shall need a representative from among you. Liaison between the forces of the occupation and the civil population. And he looks over at the Organians and they all have that beatific smile, that peaceful smile on their faces. And he goes, smile, smiles. I don't, I don't trust people who smile too much. And so he picks Kirk mm -hmm. as his representative. By the way, you know why I think they're smiling? Because they're so far beyond these guys. You they, know they're I mean? amused. They, they're amused this, yeah. by this. Like, look at the kids. Look how, look how stupid these kids are. Uh, and this is why I say, you know, I said that Kirk is f right about the Klingons in many ways. And even the Klingons say so. We Klingons have a reputation for ruthlessness. You will find that it is deserved. Should one Klingon soldier be killed, a thousand Organians will die. And Aelborn says, Commander, I assure you, our people want nothing but peace. We will cause you no trouble. 
And now they're going to take uh, the Vulcan off to the examination room. And Kirk wants to stop them. He refers to Spock as my friend. You have a poor choice of friends. He will be examined. If he is lying, he will die. If he is telling the truth, he will find that business has taken a turn for the worse. I think Core is written so well. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I mean, the writing in this, the writing in this entire episode is so great. And yeah. the fact that Kuhn wrote it as fast as he did, it's like incredible that he had, like you said, so much responsibility. Yeah. And yet he was able to focus and just make every every word sounds like it poetic. But by the way, you know, we talked about how few bad guys there are in the first season of Star Trek. Core is a bad guy. You know, he's a great villain. Um, and that is what he's supposed to be. But he is a villain that you love to hate. Of course. Absolutely. Like, he, like he's a villain that you I don't know. I actually I think it's too strong to say that you love to hate him. You he's a great villain, but he's you, you like him. I mean, you just of course, like absolutely like him. Well, this is it's something's come up over and over again on the cinephiles is this idea that we like people in movies for their goodness is not true at all. Like you think of Hans in Die Hard, you know, you love Hans. Yeah. Or Darth Vader. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, even Hannibal Lecter, who is, you know, literally a cannibal serial killer. Every moment that Anthony Hopkins is on screen, you love him. And when he wipes out the guards and escapes. Even though it's a horrible act of brutality, part of you is going, yes, <laughs> yeah, you know, totally. yeah. like our morality as viewers of entertainment is way more complicated than just we like good people and don't like bad people. Uh, by the way, I uh, just wanted to point out that. So the previous episode that we saw was Devil in the Dark and the only set on the Enterprise that we saw in Devil in the Dark was the bridge. Mm. So because of that, they broke down some of the other sets on stage oh, nine really? at Desilu Studios. So because the next episode to be produced here is Errand of Mercy. And again, the only part of the Enterprise that you see is the bridge. Now, all the sets of the Enterprise, the corridors, sick bay, captain's quarters, transporter room, all those sets are on stage nine and all of the planets and everything else that was not in location would be built on stage 10. Mm. So now they have an episode that's very, it's on location or the interiors are not on the Enterprise. So while they did use stage 10 for some of the Organian sets, they actually did build some of the sets on stage nine where the Enterprise is, oh. but because they, they had broken down some of the other sets to make room for the Organian sets. Oh. So it was another practical thing where, oh, well, let's just keep the Enterprise sets down because we broke them down from, uh, from Devil in the Dark. Now we have all this room to build more sets for Errand of Mercy for oh, the Organian sets. Very interesting. So they take Spock away, and now Kirkus has to go off with Kor. And I love that he turns back to the council right before leaving and does their little hand gesture little, yeah. in a very sarcastic very way. Very sarcastic way. Yeah, Kirk is just not, not that admirable person that we have come to know up to this point. Kor and Kirk meeting in Kor's office. He kind of runs through some of the orders of the Klingon occupation. They bring Spock in. He is what he claims to be, Commander. A Vulcanian merchant named Spock. And that guard is played by Victor London. He plays the Klingon lieutenant here. He had previously played Friday in the film version Robinson Crusoe on Mars. Oh, but here wow. is here's great trivia that when they were casting the role of Spock. Victor London 
got pretty close to really? getting the role. It was between him and Leonard Nimoy and a third actor whose name he couldn't remember. But Victor London was up for the role of Spock. Wow. Because so. I, I, I have a note about his acting, which is it's in a weird area of bad, good acting, which is that he's very, very stiff in the way that, and I can't tell if he's, the performance is stiff because he is a guard in the Klingon Empire, or if it's just that his performance is stiff. Or it's because he's trying to act stiff because his character is scared. That's what I mean. Core. That, right. That's what I mean. But Spock got through it over this mind breaker thing is. Oh, the mind sifter. The mind sifter. I got to tell you something yeah. about the mind sifter. So that device, while we never actually see it, is referenced a few times by Core in this episode. Mm-hmm. So the mind sifter is a way of extracting information, but but because of how deep this mind sifter goes, it it the 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 effect of that is it kind of leaves you as a metal vegetable. Right. So but Spock is able to Well, if they go full on. I don't think they went full on on Spock. Right. They didn't go full on on Spock, but yeah. but they but they went far enough where where it didn't affect him at all. Yeah. Now, for a device that you don't actually see, that has had an impact on some like fan fiction hmm. written over the years whether it's comic books and when I was growing up, I read a book called Star Trek The New Voyages, which was a collection of short stories written by, by different authors. It was compiled by Sandra Marshak and Myrna Colbreth. Mm. And it came out in the like 77 or so. Anyway, the last story in Star Trek The New Voyages was called Mind Sifter. Oh. And in, the, in this story, Kor uses the Mind Sifter on Kirk. And he use it, uses it in a way where it does mess up his mind. It does leave him mm. as a sort of mental vegetable of sorts. And it affects him in such a way that he is somehow able to go back to the planet where the guardian of forever is. And he goes back in time looking for Edith Keeler. Wow. Because the, the story takes place after City on the Edge of Forever. And obviously, Edith Keeler is the love of his life. Now, it's been quite a long time since I read the story, so I'm just kind of like, I don't know if my memory is right on point. You're grand inquisitor in it. Right. (laughs) But, but, so what happens is Kirk goes back in time, not to the 30s, but to the 50s. So Edith is already dead Mm. and he's in a hospital and it's being cared for by a nurse until Spock and McCoy can rescue him. But they did a whole story, fan fiction, just on the impact of the mindset they're on Kirk. And even tied it into sitting on the edge of forever, which I got to say, you know, I love, I love hearing about that kind of stuff. That's really cool. Return to your council, Barona. You will receive our official notifications as soon as they are published. In the meantime, keep the people in order. Or I will be killed. That is exactly right. You will be killed. I like the way Cor says it. You will be killed. He's great. And now we have... Kirk and Spock walking through the town and Kirk, the first thing he says is that mind sifter can't be all the terror they think it is. It should not be underestimated, Captain. It reaches directly into the mind. We Vulcans have certain mental, certain disciplines which enable me to maintain a shield. Without those disciplines, there would be no protection. I'll try and avoid it. So the implication of this scene is Spock could handle the mind sifter, but it was hard and that Kirk could not handle the mind sifter. That is the implication of what we're hearing. I think that Kirk maybe could handle the mind sifter. And the reason is, is because Kirk got split in two in the enemy within. He overcame the disease in the naked time. And most importantly, 
he fought back against the Tantalus device more than anybody ever had. Okay. I see where you're going with this. He has experiences of dealing with machines or things that are ripping apart his mind where he's been able to hold himself together. I, I see where you're going with that. Okay. But okay. All right. Yeah. That makes perfect sense. You know, Kirk and Spock are talking, walking and talking and Kirk gets distracted and he bumps into a Klingon. Out of the way, Organian. And Kirk goes after him. He's ready to go. Is there another episode other than maybe a taste of Armageddon in which Kirk is so absolutely aggressive that he's just not thinking like he's not thinking clearly you didn't really think i was going to beat his head in did you i thought you might you're right (laughs) so here's the thing here's what's weird is i actually think this is way beyond a taste of armageddon because even though i disagree with kirk's plan and taste of armageddon he has a very specific plan he's not doing anything just out of emotional anger he's doing things to execute a plan exactly here he's just reacting like this is stupid yeah, it would be stupid to go after that guy. He is acting like a, an immature yes. child. But the one thing is, we still got a job. We got a mission. We got to protect the Organians. We're not going to get any help from them. And then Kirk says this. This is, this is where he starts to have a plan. He says, if we could prove to them, they could do something to strike back, to keep the Klingons off balance. Verbal persuasion seems to be ineffective. Perhaps a more direct approach. That's exactly what I had in mind. And then this is where it becomes so fun, which is that I love Kirk and Spock on a mission together. I really do. Yeah, yeah, it's great. I, I wish McCoy was there, but maybe he, for, for maybe it's better that he's not. Well, <laughs> like it, it's funny. Said. I mean, the, the, the Kirk and Spock on a, there are several Kirk and Spock on a mission episodes all the way to Star Trek for the voyage home. It's Kirk and Spock on a mission, um, but it's also a piece of the action. It's city on the edge of forever. It's there's a bunch of episodes where it's the two of them going off together and they're so fun. Well, in a piece of the action, Kirk, Spock and McCoy oh, came down to the planet. You're right. But there's yeah. a lot that's just Kirk. But and there, Spock. But there is a lot that's just Kirk and Spock. But this is an example of an episode where or a story or a situation where McCoy's presence would have absolutely benefited Kirk. This, oh, yeah, this, absolutely. This is the ultimate example of just how much Kirk and Spock need McCoy to round themselves out. Because so much has been said about how the three of them bring such yeah. different aspects of a personality to the table that, that together, the three of them make like the perfect person. And what we are seeing here is a piece of that person is missing. And that is why Kirk and Spock are making very unusual, unethical decisions because they don't have that balance of McCoy that that he brings to, like, let's say, a a private little war. Yeah, You know what I think? And again, we're, we're playing with this idea that isn't really in the show that people are learning things or changing over time. I think Spock, in his journey, has come to admire Kirk too much. Is that I think, you know, from the Galileo 7, through a whole bunch of other stuff, watching Kirk figure everything out in arena, and in particular, watching Kirk make this huge gamble in A Taste of Armageddon, and Spock follows his plan, and it totally works despite all the odds. And I think at this point, Spock is signed on. You know what I mean? He's like, okay, this guy beats me at three-dimensional chess. He knows stuff that I don't know. I'm going to go on. I'm on Team Kirk. Let's go. You know? Well, well, again, you know, if you look at A Taste of Armageddon, he was the same way. 
Yeah. You know, this is another very grave situation in which the stakes are very, very high in which, I mean, even in Devil in the Dark, you know, when it, Spock initially says, you know, maybe we, we maybe we don't, we just kind of try to capture the Horda and, uh, you know, Kirk talks him out of it and Spock says, hey, you know what, I see your point. But in, in Errant of Mercy, Spock is definitely Team Kirk. Yeah. He sees Kirk's side and doesn't question it as much as he should. Well, and you know what? In both Arena and Devil in the Dark, where Spock is resisting Kirk, Kirk ends up making the right decisions. You know? And also Kirk snaps at him. Yeah, all these things are true. But we hear, we hear something about there's a munitions dump or something that the Klingons have, and Kirk says... I think it's time we did a little simple and plain communicating tonight. <laughs> I love the way he says the tonight. We're short of tools. I'm certain the Klingons will provide whatever is necessary. It's a pleasure doing business with you, Mr. Spock. It's great. It's nighttime. We're sneaking through a gate. We go up some stairs. A guard goes by and Kirk jumps down on him, knocks him out. Spock drags him away and we end up with a grenade with a sonic delayed grenade. action, a sonic grenade with a delayed action fuse. These crates contain chemical explosives. They should make a more satisfactory display. This seems very dangerous to me, by the way. <laughs> yeah, they, they're, well, I think from this point on, I mean, look, we don't know when the Enterprise is coming back. Right. We're at war. They're against a literal army. Right, exactly. They're already thinking that their odds are not great. And yeah. we're going to hear more about <laughs> we'll those more, odds yeah. later, but I think they're already in their head. They cannot count on the Enterprise. The cavalry does not come over the hill anymore. And, yeah. and they are on their own. Yeah. And they blow up the munitions dump, and then we do a great cut right into the middle of the scene with Kirk saying, Of course we blew it up. Which I love in terms of write, screenwriting. Yeah. That's just a great, like, skip all the other stuff. We're right in the middle. It's, uh, it's like what you pointed out about A Taste of Armageddon. Exactly. Uh, what, was it, what was it you said about it's jumping into the scene while it's actually Enter late, late leave early. Enter late, leave early. This is right. definitely enter late. Mm -hmm. And the reaction of the Organians to what they did. But that was violence. They're appalled. Yeah. They're actually got violent with the Klingons. Well, you destroy. Well, and this is what's, it's, I, you know, I've said that they have the prime direct, uh, their own version of the prime directive. I think it's well beyond the prime directive. The prime directive is a law. And Kirk struggles with that law and Picard struggles with the law. And how do we use the law? And we have instincts that make us want to get into it. And then we have this law and how do we relate to it? I think with the Organians, it is deeply in their culture, in their identity. They're not thinking, oh, I really want to interfere, but uh, I probably shouldn't because we have the prime directive. Their interfering is horrible, distasteful, disgusting. And violence, the same thing. Like this is disgusting to them what Kirk has done. And that's why Kirk's plea to them is just so misguided. So he did it to show you that you can fight back, that you don't have to be sheep, you can be wolves. And what he's demonstrating is something that's horrific to them. Captain, I implore you never to do such a thing again. And you know why the Organians say never do such a thing again? Why? Because they want to protect the Klingons. They want to protect both sides. Equally. Right, exactly. They want nobody to die on Organia. They are not picking sides. No. They are just as protective of the Klingons as yep. they are of Kirk and Spock. They are deeply loving people. You know, I, I, I said this, and maybe I would answer this then, but I'm going to answer it right now, is that of all the powerful races, I don't think the Organians are as powerful as the Q. Like, the Q seem to be like gods. Like, they could just do anything they want. The Organians, they have to work up to stuff. I think they're the best. In terms of their nobility, I agree yeah. completely. Yeah. Because like, what, like I said, other powerful races... Like Q, with like the way they torture Picard. 
Oh, it's okay, terrible. And get enjoyment out of it. Yeah. I mean, look at the way that the Metrons, instead of stopping the war like the Organians are doing, they're going to adjust the war and let these guys fight it out amongst themselves and kill the losers. That's not really cool either. But the Organians, like their nobility is, very admirable. But yep. just, just don't fight. And Kirk's still trying to figure it out. Are you afraid of retribution? Does your personal freedom mean so little to you? How little you understand us, Captain. Which, of course, is true. Absolutely. <laughs> Speak of courage, gentlemen. Does courage mean so little to you? And Kor is listening yep. the entire time because he's got the place bugged. He walks in on the room with them, and Aelborn basically betrays Kirk and yep. Spock. Or does he? Always it is the brave ones who die. The soldiers. The person he admires most in this situation is Barona, and that's who he's going to have to kill. I hope you will continue to savor the sweetness of your life. And they say he will be killed after he has his first-hand experience of our mind scanner. There's no need to use your machine on him, Commander. I can tell you his name. It is Captain James T. Kirk. I love Cora's reaction. He's like, what? Like, what? He's thrilled. Captain of the USS Enterprise. A starship commander. And his first officer? Hmm. I had hoped to meet you in battle. Like, John Calagos is so brilliant. He's like, what? Like, like the surprised reaction is so, is so genuine. It's, yep. it's perfect. For some reason he feels that he must destroy you, Commander. Just as you feel you must destroy him. That's going to be rather difficult now, isn't it, Captain? And we push in, and that is the end of Act 2. What I was thinking of is like, there are so many situations in which people throughout history have decided they had to kill each other, other over a thing that we might look at and go, well, that doesn't make any sense. Honor killings, killings for me as an atheist, people killing each other over which religion is right. That's just like, for some reason, he feels he must destroy you just as you feel you must destroy him. Like, That's, yeah, there's a lot of reasons that humans kill each other that actually from a different perspective, don't make any sense. Although Absolutely. if you're in them, they make a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. You know, act three, we're right back in the same spot. And Kor lays into the Organians. He feels about them exactly the way Kirk does. I'm sorry, Captain. It was for the best. No harm would come of it. And Kirk's response is just so angry. I'm used to the idea of dying. But I have no desire to die for the likes of you. I have no desire to die for the likes of you yet. He is about to, a little bit later in this episode, go out and probably die. And, and what's so interesting is, like, Kirk has his duty to protect these people he doesn't like. He feels way more connection to Core. Core he gets. And these people are, we just said, the most admirable people he's met. And that is the people Kirk has no desire to die for. Yep, absolutely. And Core is totally with him on this. I don't blame you, Captain. Because they know the macho game they're playing with each other. I think at this point, it occurred to me that Kor is showing more respect for Kirk than Kirk is to Kor. I agree. Kor respects Kirk in more ways than Kirk respects Kor. I, I think that maybe Kirk does respect Kor, but I, I don't think it's, it's level. Here, here's what I think the difference is, and I hadn't thought about it until you said it, but here's what I think the difference is, is that the Klingons for Kirk are the bad guys. They are evil. The Federation for the Klingons are the enemy. They're not attacking them because they're bad. 
they're attacking them because the strong must win. Right. You That's know? a great point. He doesn't, ha- he doesn't think that Kirk is evil. He thinks that Kirk is his opponent. Right. The core sees Kirk as his opponent and Kirk sees core as evil. Yep. And it's not the same thing. And we head to Core's office where, and this is exactly to your point, is Core's going, have a drink with me. Let's chat. Do you think I'm going to sit here and just talk with the enemy? You'll talk either here, now, voluntarily, or under our mind scanner. Again, this is exactly what you said. I'm so glad you said it. The fact is, Captain, I have a great admiration for your Starfleet. A remarkable instrument. And I must confess to a certain admiration for you. I love that. Yeah. Do you think that Kirk has heard of Commander Core? Oh, that's a great question. No, I don't, because I think if he did, he would have yeah, had a different reaction probably. when he saw him. Again, we could disagree with what Kirk's choices are. He's so much fun. I know, of course, that it was you who destroyed our supplies last night. Something was destroyed. Nothing inconsequential, I hope. <laughs> yeah, the, it's, the two of them are, are really great together. And this is where we get to what's so interesting about this, about what's going on here. You of the Federation, you are much like us. We're nothing like you. We're a democratic body. Come now, Captain. I'm not referring to minor ideological differences. I mean that we are similar as a species. Here we are on a planet of sheep to tigers, predators, hunters, killers. Do you want to know what my note is here? You're going to go back to a taste of Armageddon. Yes. And you're going to go back to the line, we can admit that we're killers, but we're not going to kill today. Well, and uh, Anon Seven's whole speech about we are barbarians. Barbarians. Yeah. And let's face it, killers. We're back on this theme. But now the bad guy is telling us the same thing. And that's why I go like these episodes are all interconnected in this weird way. And it is precisely that which makes us great. And there is a universe to be taken. Do you know what episode that made me think of? Uh, Spacey. Oh, because of a universe to be taken. That makes perfect sense. That's not what I was thinking of. I was thinking of the enemy within. It is the killer inside us that makes us great. Okay. I see that. I'm with you. Is that all of these themes are connected in Star Trek. Well, that, that's you know? something that's been the big revelation since we've yeah. been doing this whole, this whole Enterprise Incidents podcast is that everything is interconnected. But this is another reason why Errand of Mercy just really is a great companion episode to A Taste of Armageddon. I, I think Errand of Mercy is the culmination of a whole bunch of stuff, of which Taste of Armageddon is one of the most important. And this is the thing. We'll be talking about that Core and Kirk understand each other because there's a macho, masculine, competitive thing. And then Core articulates that. Then it shall be a matter of testing each other's wills and power. Survival must be earned, Captain. There's a, a little bit more testosterone on the side of Kirk. Yeah. Whereas in, in some ways, Coors, his confidence and his macho-ness is more from an intellectual standpoint. It's more, pl- Kirk's, and it's more playful. Kirk's yeah. is more, more, more physical. Yeah. But what the, it, it, what's it establishing is a certain view of how the world works. The idea of the strong shall win. And that is how it's supposed to be. Yeah. That's Coors' philosophy. I don't think it's actually Kirk's philosophy, but he, he can get into that you know what i mean absolutely he's got that streak mm-hmm. in him and then he asks for information on starfleet and kirk with a great smile says don't climb a tree it's great i can get what i want through a mind scanner but there would be very little of your mind left captain the other thing i thought of in this in core's relationship to kirk and his admiration for him is i thought of the romulan commander you and i are of a kind 
a different reality, I could have called your friend. Can you imagine the Klingon commander core, the Romulan commander, and Kirk in the same room together? Oh, amazing. That would have been something. Well, here, here's the thing, I think, where I think that Star Trek later on made a choice that I think has a whole bunch of reasons why it's a good choice and a whole bunch of reasons why I think it's problematic is that I think what Star Trek here says is that these other species we meet, they're really all humans. They look a little bit different and they have a different culture, but it's culture that has, makes them change. It's, but they're really humans. And what later on Star Trek said is Ferengi are like this and Vulcans are like this and Klingons are like this and Romulans are like this that they are genetically predisposed to be different, not culturally. But the, the original series has established the Klingons and the Romulans. And I think more so, a little more so with the Romulans, with the way that Balance of Terror played out, that we are more alike than unalike. I yeah. think with, with, the, with Errant of Mercy, they're saying that there's a lot, a lot of similarities, but I think that the, the humans and the Klingons are more unalike than the humans and the Romulans were. Yet in the end, it was the Klingons that we became allies with, and the Romulans were still the enemies of the Federation into the 24th century. So I think it's interesting. But the, the way that Kirk and the Romulan commander are in each other's head, despite the fact that they never even really met face-to-face -face mm -hmm. until the very end, there's more with the way that Kirk and Ro the Romulan commander like really come to respect and admire each other from afar. You know, with Kor and Kirk, I think there's more of a respect on Kor's part to Kirk than there is from yeah, I agree. Kirk to Kor. I agree. Um, and Which he, is surprising because of what Kirk experienced with the Romulan commander in Balance of Terror. Well, I think there's, I won't say it's racism exactly, but I do think he thinks the Klingons are evil. Right. You know, mm -hmm. in a way he didn't think the Romulans were evil. And also maybe because the Romulans look like Spock. That's possible too. So Very he, possible. he wasn't, he didn't see them as evil because, well, if they're an offshoot of the Vulcans, there's a point of connection with the Romulans that he's not seeing with the Klingons. Twelve hours, Captain. It will take a lot longer than that, Commander. Longer than that, I will not wait. I respect you, Captain, but this is war. A game we Klingons play to win. And he sends him off to the dungeon, basically, um, uh, where Spock is waiting. Same dungeon, by the way, that was used for uh, Return of the Archons. Yeah. It's so funny, the things that as a kid, I just never cared about. You know what I mean? And looking as an adult, I'm like, oh, yeah, same set. How much of the 12 hours do we have left? Six hours, 43 minutes. If the Klingons are punctual. Spock is very on it with the numbers in this episode. Yeah. That seems to like really hit in this episode. Uh, absolutely, yeah. it does. Yes. I think we had one. Oh, we had one in Devil in the Dark. There's one, too. Yeah. Yeah. Where they're going through the caves, the odds of yeah. us, both of us being killed. Right. Sure. These Organians, they do not seem to understand. Most peculiar. Nevertheless, our orders still stand. We've got to make some attempt to neutralize the Klingon occupation. And Spock's like, you know, we're in jail. <laughs> there's guards everywhere. This might not be that easy. And then they hear a noise. And they kind of take cover like they did in Return of the Archons. They're going to attack whoever comes through that door. And, and it's Elborn. Yeah. And by the way, nobody opens the door. Again. Right. Again, they're like totally oblivious that doors yeah. are opening by themselves. Yet yeah. Despite the, there's, there's no technology there yeah. to and, do it. And Elborn just goes, oh, there you are. I trust you are in good health. Shall we go? Go? Yes, your captors plan to do violence to you. That we cannot permit. And again, they're not cluing in. 
they said the same thing. You were going to do violence to the Klingons and that we can't permit. And now they're saying the Klingons are going to do violence to you. We can't permit that. And Kirk and Spock aren't going, who are you? First, <laughs> <laughs> you turn us in, then you get us out. What are you doing now? Waiting for the Klingons to post a reward so you can turn us in again and collect it? How did you understand us, Captain? You know, we've, we've heard so many times now that there were hints dropped and Kirk and Spock aren't picking up on it. It's just like in Devil in the Dark with the silicon nodules. Yes, that's a great point. The structure of the screenplay is that we're being given hints along the way. We're, we're ahead of them. We're, yeah. and, and I mean, especially, I mean, well, it's not, it's not as uh, much as Devil in the Dark because in that episode, Kirk uh, or Spock was ahead of Kirk in that right. and And we're just waiting for Spock to just sort of like say like, here you go, this is what it is, the nodules are eggs, boom. But with this episode, you know, even Spock is not picking up on it. We are a little, and certainly knowing how the episode ends, it makes it more fun because you're noticing these these hints right. more you know, better than maybe the first time around. But uh, after seeing the episode for 200 times, I think it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's kind of interesting how, how Kirk and Spock are not picking up on it. Well, one of the weird things about the way stories work is that we, think, we know we're in a story. So if you're in a story and someone says, you know, there's a rumor about a werewolf, well, then there's a werewolf and the characters in the story won't believe there's a werewolf because that's the thing that doesn't happen. That's not real. But we know we're watching a story and we know when we're watching a story that everything is there for a reason. So when the guy knows that there's starships orbiting the planet, we go, whoa, that's there for a reason. Whereas the characters in the thing, they don't know they're in a story. <laughs> so they're just paying attention like they pay attention to anything. We're back at Kor's office. He finds out that they've escaped. And he says, Implements special occupation order number four. And we're back with Kirk, who's just staring at them. And they're just smiling. You are free, Captain. I don't know how I'm free. And why? Finally, he's starting to ask some questions. Sidiotic placidity of yours. Your refusal to do anything to protect yourselves. We have already answered that question. To us, violence is unthinkable. And I think that word unthinkable is actually really real for them. It's incredibly difficult for them to even conceive of violence, I think. This is Commander Moore. The two Federation prisoners have escaped. Obviously, with outside aid. They will be returned immediately. So that you will know we mean what we say. Listen. I love the way they did this because it's cheap and it's really emotional. Just and it's also seeing the way that Kirk and Spock duck yep. for cover and the Organians are canceled. They're still sitting there with smiles yep. on their faces, smiles on their faces. Like they're just like, get a load of these guys in the courtyard of my headquarters. 200 Organians have just been killed in two hours. 200 more will die. And 200 more after that. That is quite a threat. That is absolutely quite a threat. That, yeah, I mean, now this is where, where we see that the Klingons, they're leaning into that evilness that Kirk has tried, has tried to establish them as. You know what I feel I have to bring up? What's that? You know what else was going to happen in two hours? General Order 24. Well, that's a very good point. Kirk made a way, way worse threat and meant it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Mr. Spock... Seems it's up to you and me. It would appear so, Captain. This is what's so fascinating, and it's kind of what's fascinating to me in Taste of Armageddon too. I love Kirk and Spock going off on this mission, even though they're wrong. They're so fun. And Kirk's line: 
Federation has invested a great deal of money in our training. They're about due for a small return. You know what I'm really glad of? That we're not doing Next Generation where we have to talk about money and how do things work in the Federation? Because <laughs> it's something that I don't think they ever really figured out. We have two hours with which to do it. But only two. More Organians will die. No, Mr. Spock. No more will die on account of us. Do you think they would turn themselves in at an hour and 59 minutes? Uh, that's a really great question. Do I think that Kirk and Spock would have turned themselves? Yeah, I do, actually. I do, too. To, to, Absolutely. to prevent 200 more Organians from dying, even yep. though Kirk says, I have no desire to die for the likes of you. But I think he would. Just like Kirk was so, he was so invested into his gamble in A Taste of Armageddon that he is, at this point, so invested into trying to make the Organians see that, quote unquote, he is right that he is going to go out and die, even though he just said he has no desire to die for the likes of them. It's about yep. the principle of him dying to prove in some weird way that he's right and the Klingons are wrong. Well, and this is what's, what's weird about this episode is there are the episodes where Kirk was wrong, and then there are the episodes where Kirk was right, and this is an episode where he's right and wrong, is that he is trying to protect the Organians. He is an honorable person. The Klingons are a threat. He is right in a lot of ways, but he's also rushing towards war. And now he wants to get their phasers and he threatens Aelborn to get them. He grabs him by, he goes around the desk, grabs the chair, spins it around, gets in his face and says, You've told us a great deal about how you hate violence. Unless you tell me where those phasers are, you're going to have more violence than you know what to do with. Bane says, why don't you just give him what he wants? Doesn't matter. Give him his toys. Yep. What's the difference? And Kirk says, and I think that, as he said, I think this is 100% true. I have no great love for you, your planet, your culture. Despite that, Mr. Spock and I are going to go out there and quite probably die. In an attempt to show you that there are some things worth dying for. That is a heroic, awesome speech. Absolutely it is. It's not on the level of... The, the end speech in A Taste of Armageddon. No. <laughs> well, and part of it is that he's going out to kill people. In Taste of Armageddon, it's about not killing people. Right. In this, it's about fighting. There are only two of you against an army. Don't you realize that what you intend to do will be hopeless? And Kirk just says, Come on, Mr. Spock, let's get out of here. And they get up and they follow towards the door, the Organians, and very formal. And I like that the camera stays behind them. Of course, we cannot allow it to stop them. is very bad. It's necessary. They may harm one another. We asked Trefane, who seems to be the most intuitive one. He would wait until darkness. Then? Terrible, inconceivable, savage. At this point, as the audience, we know these guys are powerful. There's something about these guys. Yeah. Like, they're, they're, they're the ones pulling the strings. We're in an exterior. I am 90% sure this was shot day for night. Which yeah, means Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I have it in my notes here, Steve, that when Kirk and Spock stunned the guards... It was filmed at sunlight using a day for night filter. Yeah. Very, very good. Hey, I didn't go to film school for nothing. Um, and we're talking about taking out those two guards and Kirk asked for the odds. Difficult to be precise, Captain. I should say approximately 7,824.7 to one. I like that he says it's difficult to be precise. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's the best. And then Kirk repeats it. Difficult to be precise. 7,824 to one. Spot goes. No. <laughs> 7,824.7 to one. I think this is the fun Kirk and Spock on a mission stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I love it. Some, this, I love it. I, I was so appreciative of the levity at this moment yeah. that even though they are out there and they will quote unquote quite probably die, 
that they still have that relationship there. And it was, a, it was a nice moment of levity. I think, you know, you've talked about Star Trek hitting its stride. We've certainly have funny moments before. We've certainly seen Kirk be funny before. We've seen funny moments with Spock. I think this episode, this moment even, is when they lock in how levity works within a dramatic show, within an action sequence. Completely agree. And this is something we're going to see in Wrath of Khan. We're going to see it in Voyage Home. We're going to see it that we can be in the middle of a really serious situation and still be having fun. Same thing just happened in Devil in the Dark when they're yep. talking about, you know, being together and, the, you know, the odds of us, both of us being killed. Yeah. Uh, that was a moment of levity in a very, very dramatic situation. They stun the two guards. It has begun. Be hard. Prepare yourselves. And this is where I go. They're not as powerful as the Q. Because they have to prep themselves. They have to prep. The and they just snap yeah. their fingers and, and it's happens. all together. Like they have to bring their powers together to make this happen. But the Q have power without a constructive purpose, just like Trillane. Uh, because Trillane is a Q. Of course. I cannot understand these people. They know what decades don't they? They do not seem to be worried about anything. Not enough to be a military governor, but to govern a population of sheep. He hates the Organians. He's frustrated. He's just, he's now just as frustrated with them yeah. as Kirk was. Well, you know what's funny? Kirk wants them to fight, and Kor wants somebody to fight. You know what I mean? He wants an opponent. Well, he wants to be out in space uh, yeah, fighting totally. the Enterprise. This is like beneath him. He wants action. Kirk and Spock going through these same, you know, torchlit corridors, grabs a guy, belt around the neck. If you don't tell me. I can't like look how aggressive mm -hmm. Kirk is. And would he kill him if he didn't tell him? Yeah, I think so too. I think so too. Yeah, I think absolutely. We're, yeah, we're in the middle of an enemy army. Like, and by the way, the blooper I was telling you about mm. from the blooper reel. So it, it's it's this scene, and Shatner says he flubs the line. He goes, "If you don't tell me what I already know, <laughs> I'll kill you." <laughs> That's funny. Um, and he does get some information. Spock uh, neck pinches him. Um, and Kirk asks, what are odds now? And we've made it under 7,000. Yeah, getting better. Getting better. Getting better. <laughs> it's fun. And we go into Kor's office. Just stay where you are, Commander. You have done well to get this far through my guards. And Spock's line is, again, Spock is so funny. I believe you'll find that several of them are no longer in perfect operating condition. Spock is absolutely on Kirk's side. Yeah. Like, none of that hesitation. Like, maybe we shouldn't pursue the Gorn. Maybe we should try to capture the Horda. It, no, this is the Spock from A Taste of Armageddon, where he is absolutely on Kirk's side, side by side, through to the end. You know what we haven't said? You know, we talked about that Spock actually does have emotions. You know one of the emotions he has? What's that? He has fun with Kirk. Oh, he does have fun with Kirk. He is having fun. Even if they're going to die, he's having fun. Like He's having fun being on his side, being side by side with him. Well, and joking with him. I mean, like the, the, the odds, that's a joke. I'm sure you have friends where you have a good rhythm. And you, well, and you, and you and I on this podcast, sometimes, I know sometimes I say something so I know you can say the next thing. Absolutely. You know what I mean? Sure. And that's what you could see. Kirk and Spock, they are having fun joking with each other. Now, if you went up to Spock and say, hey, do you have fun joking with Kirk? He would say, I don't have, I don't know what that means. I right, don't right, have fun. Right, right, yeah, but That's, that's not logical to yeah. have fun. You will be interested in knowing that a Federation fleet is on its way here at the moment. Our fleet is preparing to meet them. So we're right on the verge of war. Shall we wait and see the results before you uh, kill me? I don't intend to kill you unless I have to. And this is the big difference between the Klingons and the Federation. Sentimentality, mercy, the emotions of peace. Your weakness, Captain Kirk. 
What's interesting to me about that line is Kirk would say exactly the same thing about the Organians. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. That's their weaknesses, mm-hmm. their passivity, their gentleness. That's their weakness. Well, that's the weakness that he perceives the Organians yes, to be. Exactly. And he's about to find out how wrong he really yeah. was. And of course, so great. Do you know why we are so strong? Because we are a unit. Each of us is part of the greater whole, always under surveillance. Even a commander like myself. And now we see a camera. And just at that moment, as the Klingons break into the room, the weapons become so hot that they that they drop them. Their shocked reaction, they drop them. And then they go to grab each other. And, and they their can't... bodies are hot. Oh, ah. And then we're on the bridge of the Enterprise and everybody jumps out of their chairs because the chairs are too hot. What is this block? Inexplicable, Captain. Extreme heat. Not only the weapons, but the bodies as well. I remember when I saw this at that convention, mm-hmm. everyone in the audience like started laughing because <laughs> it is kind of funny. It's funny. Yeah. And Kor goes to grab a knife and has to drop it. And then he and Kirk sort of like assume yes, the position. Yes, they circle to like, each other. To circle each other, like with the hand-to-hand combat. And then the Organians come walking in like, uh, 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 sorry, kids, time well, for bed. Well, and they have the same tone they've had throughout. And this, what's the actor's name who plays Aylborn? Uh Aylborn is uh, John Abbott. I think John Abbott is so great in his minimalism, in his softness. Like, he really got how to play this character. We are terribly sorry to be forced to interfere, gentlemen, but we cannot permit you to harm yourselves. And Kor is mad. (laughs) And you know what's crazy? So's Kirk. So here you have Kor and Kirk in a different way than Kirk and the Romulan commander. We are seeing that Kirk and Kor, the humans and the Klingons, are more alike than unalike. Yeah but for the wrong reasons. We have put a stop to your violence. You are stopping us? You? It is so condescending. It is so insulting because he thought of them as sheep, as nothing, as beneath him. And now they're stopping him. All instruments of violence on this planet now radiate a temperature of 350 degrees. They are inoperative. My fleet. The same conditions exist on both the Starfleets, there will be no battle. And Kirk calls up to the Enterprise. We were just closing in on the Klingon fleet when every control on our ship became too hot to handle. So the Organians are wielding their power deep into space. So maybe in some ways, while I think that you're right, that they're not as powerful as the Q in the way that they can snap their finger. Yeah. They're pretty darn powerful. They are pretty damn powerful. It might be the whole planet of Organians are doing this, you know, and, but it's kind of focused on Elborn because he says, As I stand here, I also stand upon the home planet of the Klingon Empire and the home planet of your Federation, Captain. I'm going to put a stop to this insane war. So what's the difference between what Elborn is doing by interfering with the Federation and the Klingons and Kirk? In a taste of Armageddon interfering between MNER 7 and Vendicar. Violence. The violence. In Kirk's scenario, millions of people could die. Aylborn, nobody's going to die. So, what uh, I agree with. So, what you're saying is that Kirk's gamble could lead to millions and millions of people die. Yeah. What Aylborn is doing, like no one's going to die. No one's, no one's, no one's going to die. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. I agree. In part, and that's just because Aylborn is the Organians are way more powerful than Kirk. Right. If Kirk could have just go stop, he would have. Right. But he can't do that. You can't just stop the fleet. 
What gives you the right? The way Kirk feels like he's the righteous one. Yep. And he's the one who was right. And Kor thinks that he is the one who's right. Isn't that what all these wars and all of human history are all about? Each side thinking that they are right. And then you have Aelborn just coming in and saying, hey, here's an idea. You, you know, or, or not even an idea. Here's a fact. You're not fighting. There have been righteous wars throughout history. There, and certainly we can say fighting against the Nazis, that was a righteous war. Most wars, when you look at who's right and who's wrong, the answers are very complicated. You know, like World War I, it's tough. I mean, there, there are not a lot of people that can give you the causes of World War I or, or, which si- or why one side were the good guys and one side were the bad guys. You know, it's, it's complicated. And yet, at this moment, Kirk and Kor are 100% together. They are angrier at the Organians for stopping their war than they were angry at each other. You have no right to dictate to our Federation or our empire how to handle their interstellar relations. That's a great point. So up to this point, you know, Kirk and Kor are sort of dancing around each other. And now they are united in their disapproval of Aelborn stopping. Like, no, we want to fight. Yeah. But both of them are saying to Aelborn, we want to fight. And how dare you? How dare you interfere? Yeah. How dare you? Get, stay, how stay how out dare you save millions of lives? Stay out of this, you, you lowly people. Yeah. Oh, wait a minute. You're not lowly people. But stay out of it anyway. Well, and, and then they state their case. Kirk says, We have legitimate grievances against the Klingons. They've invaded our territory, killed our citizens. They're openly aggressive. They've boasted that they'll take over half the galaxy. Which I think is probably all true. And then Kor, his response is slightly different because their culture is slightly different. He says, And why not? We're the stronger. You've tried to hem us in, cut off vital supplies, strangle our trade. You've been asking for a war. And they start arguing with each other. I just love that the Organians, they're just stopping it. They're yeah. just stopping the yep. war. They're just stopping it before it really starts. They're just saying, you're not fighting. They're saying, go, I, go to your room. Yeah. I don't care who started it. Get off my lawn. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I believe them when they say, We find interference in other people's affairs most disgusting. That's why they hadn't interfered up to this point. Yeah. And Spock's reaction, like he's starting to like clue in a little bit. You should be the first to be an Arsai. 200 hostages killed. No one has been killed, Captain. No one has died here in uncounted thousands of years. And Kirk says, we have the right, and Aelborn interrupts him. To wage war, Captain, to kill millions of innocent people, to destroy life on a planetary scale, that's what you're defending. And then that epiphany that just took too long to happen, but Kirk finally has it. Kirk has put his foot in his mouth this entire episode, and now he's finally realizing where that foot is. Well, no one wants war. Kirk is like flabbergasted. Like it's really going to hit him later when he gets back to the Enterprise, how fundamentally wrong he was every step of this way. And that's an endearing quality just to see yeah. how like he sunk in his chair on the bridge. The, there's a line in um, Crimson Tide, which I think is a movie that doesn't get the credit. Great movie, 1995, directed by Tony Scott. It's my favorite Tony Scott movie. I teach it in class because it's such a well-constructed film. There's the scene at the dinner table at the beginning where Gene Hackman is kind of grilling Denzel Washington. And they're talking about the nuclear age and military strategy. And Hackman puts Denzel on the spot because Denzel has said that in the nuclear age, the real enemy cannot be destroyed. And Gene Hackman says, oh, well, now tell us who the real enemy is. In my humble opinion, 
In the nuclear world, the true enemy is war itself. I think that is a profound line. Absolutely. And I think that is what's happening right in this thing. Sure. The real enemy is the violence. For most of the time, you know, the idea that we win and everybody's happy, that doesn't usually happen that way. And also, it doesn't stay that way. No. Because there's something new to fight about. Yep. People have a right to handle their own affairs. Eventually, we will. Oh, eventually, you will have peace. But only after millions of people have died. It is true that in the future, you and the Klingons will become fast friends. You will work together. And that was so true. In fact, when they were developing Star Trek The Next Generation, the producers, Gene Roddenberry, Dorothy Fontana, Bob Justman, David Gerald, all people who worked on the original series went, you know what? We're going to take that hint, that one yep. line from Aaron of Mercy, a classic episode of the original series, and we're going to, so, to show that as a prophecy that came true. I think that's amazing. And I think that's, that's, you know, we talk about fan service and I think so often fan service is done poorly. I agree. Um, and this is a perfect example of it being done well. Absolutely. You don't need yep. to know this to enjoy Next Generation. But if you're a big fan and you do know this, it makes it better. Your emotions are most discordant. We do not wish to seem inhospitable, but gentlemen, you must leave. Yes, please leave us. The mere presence of beings like yourselves is intensely painful to us. Which I think is true. Again, I think everything they say is true. I think they wanted to be hospitable. I think they cared about this up and coming, young, not nearly as advanced as them species. And they wanted to welcome them. And now it is painful to be around them. But still, core is still aggressive. Captain, it's a trick. We can handle them. I have an army. And then we start to see the Organians show the truth of their true selves. And they slowly turn into balls of pure energy. So bright that our humans and Klingons have to cover their eyes to protect them from the light. And that pure energy, the line that Spock says, pure energy, was sampled by a band called the Information Society for their <laughs> 1988 song, What's On Your Mind? At the end of the song's credits, Leonard Nimoy is even given a special thanks credit. <laughs> All right. You've laid out so much amazing trivia in the course of this podcast. That might be the most ridiculous piece of trivia you've hey, ever gotten. You know what? I remember when that song came out in 1988, I was a, a junior in college and I hear the song, tell me what's on your mind. And I hear Spock go, pure energy, pure, pure, pure energy. And I'm like, well, that's from Merit of Mercy. We should definitely put a link to this song on our Facebook page. Yes. <laughs> um, and then we asked like, well, what's this whole planet? What have we been seeing? And Spock's conclusion is conventionalizations, I should say. Useless to the Organians, created so that visitors such as ourselves could have conventional points of reference. Spock's observation that the Organians are above us as we are above the amoeba. Yeah. That's a pretty big step big in the evolutionary distance. scale. And Kirk now kind of has accepted this and turns to Kor. Well, Commander, I guess that takes care of the war. Obviously, the Organians aren't going to let us fight. Kor's line. A shame, Captain. It would have been glorious. Great yep. last line from John Kalikos as Core, as we see him. I totally understand why they wanted him back. I mean, he's just so great. It would have been great. Yeah. I mean, it's a, part of the reason he didn't come back is because he had other obligations. But also, I believe it might have been Gene Kuhn. I might be wrong. Uh, but definitely one of the producers, either, either Kuhn or even Roddenberry or maybe Justman, 
felt like in all of space, the Enterprise is out there. And like, isn't it like a bit of a stretch that every time the Enterprise encounters the Klingons, it's core? Right. So I understand that. And I actually like, you know, the fact that they were able to have William Campbell, who played Troy and come back uh, as uh, Captain Koth in uh, Trouble Triples. Trouble, and then, yeah. of course, I mean, you know, Michael and Sarah as Kang in Day of the Dove. He's still, I, I think he's still the best. And we're back on the bridge and Kirk is pensive and quiet. And he's got his head sunk in his, like, his hand. He's like embarrassed. I and mean, he says he's embarrassed. He's humbled. Yeah. He's unsettled. We think of ourselves as the most powerful beings in the universe. It's unsettling to discover that we're wrong. But he's already seen. He's already seen that he's not. He's yeah. already seen with Trelane and the Metrons and certainly whoever designed Landru and the Thacians that they are not the most powerful force in the universe. So, so this is a big step back in Kirk's character to, to make such a fundamental mistake and carry that mistake as far as he did in this episode, but that he's admitting that he was so wrong. Well, this is the thing. I think there are two things to separate out. And I actually think the idea of we think of ourselves as the most powerful thing in the universe, I think that muddies the waters because I think the more important point is the first line he says, I was furious with the Organians for stopping a war I didn't want. Is it interesting that the Organians are super powerful? Yes. What's more interesting to me is that Kirk hated them and they only wanted peace and gentleness and caring like that all of he hated them for their most admirable traits and was fighting for a war that he didn't want that's the real thing captain it took millions of years for the organians to evolve into what they are even the gods did not spring into being overnight great line you and i have no reason to be embarrassed we did after all beat the odds Oh, no, 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 Mr. Spock. We didn't beat the odds. We didn't have a chance. The Organians raided the game. That's great. That's a great line. Yeah, and Kirk gets up and and walks sort of forward in front of Sulu into a nice close-up at the end of the episode. he's like, in the end, it all worked out. Yep. War is avoided. Yep. You know, maybe there will be, just like the Organians predicted, Klingons and the Federation will become friends. Not just allies to an extent, but friends. Maybe sometime in the late 80s. I don't know. Yeah, 1987, October 1987. (laughs) There's a Klingon on the bridge of the Enterprise. So, Scott, what did people say about this episode? Well, uh, John Newland, who directed the episode, uh, it was one and only episode of Star Trek that John Newland directed, said there was no rehearsal time on Star Trek. You just went in and did it. But with guys like Shatner and Nimoy and the rest of the cast, it was easy. Good actors do very good things to begin with, so it's just a question of the director knowing how to pull it all together. Final word came from John Colicus, Clay Core. It was a great episode. It was a wonderful episode because in those days, it was the United States and Russia in the Cold War projected into the future. The dialogue was phenomenal, and we had our points of view, and what I love at the end of this thing is that we turned into two stupid kids bickering, and they were getting it said, just hold it. You're not going anywhere with this war. Wow. It's great, isn't it? That's great. That's a great yeah. quote. All right. So I've sort of hinted it as we've gone along that there's this connective tissue between all of these episodes. And it gave me a big thought. And to, to explain this big thought, I need to make a slight digression, which is there is, uh, as, as you know, I'm an editor and I've edited documentaries. 
And there is one small piece of editing I did that I'm most proud of. And like lots of editing, it's something that no one would ever notice. And it's in the Great White Shark documentary that I directed. This is not a plug. It's available on Amazon, Great White Shark, Beyond the Cage of Fear. Uh, and in it, you've heard me talk about Mike Hoover. He was the leader of the expedition. He's in his was in his mid to late 60s. And every day he was in the water outside of the cage swimming with Great White Sharks. And there's basically four lines in this piece of editing. He said that not only do I think it's safe, but they can see for themselves. It's safe. And then I was speaking to the head shark scientist, who's a guy named Mauricio Hoyas. And I asked him, is everything Hoover does safe? And Mauricio said, no, no, it's not safe. Then I caught a line of Hoover while he was just talking to someone on the bridge of the boat. And he said, yeah. if you do this enough, swim with great white sharks enough, somebody's going to get whacked. Right. Exactly. But what does that mean? You stay in a cage your whole life? Right. I don't think so. Right. And then the final line is Hoover talking about the free divers. And these are free divers without scuba gear. And they swim with the sharks and grab onto their dorsal fins and take long rides on the back of great white sharks. And Hoover said about them. And they wouldn't be here if it wasn't dangerous. So the reason I like the piece of editing is it goes from Hoover says it's safe. Mauricio says it's not safe. Hoover says you do it long enough, someone's going to die. And then he says these guys wouldn't do it if it's not dangerous. These are four lines that all contradict each other. And the reason I put them all together is that I don't want to tell the audience whether or not sharks are safe or not safe. What I want is the audience to be thinking about safety and about risk and reward and why we do things. I want an active audience thinking about stuff. Why did I bring this up? I'm, yeah, I'm trying to figure that out. We've had a bunch of episodes that are all linked. So we have episodes where Kirk rushes in and fixes a problem. We have the return of the Archons, where it's very clear this is a messed up society. And I think we all are like, yes, Kirk has to fix this. He has to break the society. We have a taste of Armageddon, where we, I think we all agree that what's happening is monstrous, but then I had issues with his tactics and the society in A Taste of Armageddon, while it has problems, I don't think most of us would say it's as bad as what's going on in Return of the Archons. Then we have this side of paradise, where again, Kirk is going to break what is happening. But how we feel about what's going on in this side of paradise is certainly a long way from Return of the Archons. And very different from Taste of Armageddon. Three episodes where the same thing happens, and yet our feelings about them are not the same. So if we look at it as what is the message? Well, the message is complicated because of contradictions. Then we have these other episodes where Kirk was wrong. We have Arena, where Kirk rushes in ready to kill. And then the Metrons, like Kirk in A Taste of Armageddon, says, no, no, you can't do that. We're not going to let you kill from a distance. You've got to be up close and personal to do it, which is very similar to what Kirk does to Miniar and Vendikar in A Taste of Armageddon. And now Kirk discovers, oh, I was wrong, and chooses not to follow his initial actions. Then we have Devil in the Dark, where again, Kirk discovers he's wrong, but I would say that the Horda is even more sympathetic than the Gorn. Again, a different flavor. And all of this brings us to Errand of Mercy, where Kirk rushes in ready for violence. And in a lot of ways, he's right, because the Klingons are bad guys. They are killing people. We are at war. And the Organians, like Kirk, they're now in the Kirk role in A Taste of Armageddon, and they stop it, but they do it non-violently. And I suddenly went, wait a minute, we have all these contradictions. If you watch one episode, the message is really clear. But if you put all the episodes together, what is the message? And I suddenly went, is it possible that Gene Kuhn and Gene Roddenberry are playing a much longer game 
is it possible that the goal isn't to say, hey, we have to stop this culture that's messed up? Or the goal isn't to say, hey, we can be wrong. We need to learn that we're wrong. What if the goal is we want people watching this show to think that we don't have an answer? None of this stuff is simple. This is all complicated. Vietnam's not simple. The Cold War is not simple. What other cultures do isn't simple. You have taken a five-minute argument to say very simply that they're not looking for answers. They're just, they're just raising more questions. Yes. And On purpose. I, I, I absolutely agree. I mean, the, these episodes, specifically A Taste of Armageddon, Aaron of Mercy, uh, you know, Arena, even Return of the Archons. These are message episodes designed to make us think, designed to ask questions without giving easy answers. There's no easy answers. There's no easy answers. There's just a lot more to think about. And that's where I think the way these episodes really tie in, especially the Gene Kuhn produced episodes yeah. of the original series, you know, because I mean, these are the heavy, you know, we're, we're into the, we're into like what I like to call the part of the series where it's Star Trek is really hitting its stride because the, the characters are more defined because we are seeing bigger arcs in our characters in each episode where we are really addressing very, very big issues, whether it's the counterculture in uh, the side of paradise or the Cold War in A Taste of Armageddon or Vietnam and now Afghanistan in Errand of Mercy. Uh, everything you said in your very articulate, very neat way uh, comes back to the point that, first of all, the biggest, easiest answer, if there is an answer, is that war is bad and you shouldn't be fighting. But the questions around them just raise more questions, and that's okay. Yeah. The end result is, no, you shouldn't be fighting. Like Nothing good comes out of war. I think more than anything else, the takeaways from these episodes you mentioned, it's communication and it's, it's compassion and empathy. Yeah. Definitely communication, because so often in these episodes you mentioned, like we go in, we meaning Kirk and Spock and the Enterprise go into a situation thinking it's one way, and and through communication we find out that we were wrong, and it's just in these other episodes, Kirk and Spock, especially Kirk, comes to that conclusion on his own, and comes around. Uh, in this episode, he has to have it shown to him. That's what makes this a, a tougher pill for Kirk to swallow. But I agree that certainly that these episodes are designed to ask more questions, to make us think, but I think also to really communicate. Well, and I think the big thing I want to point out is there are messages we can find in an individual episode, but the cumulative effect of the first season of Star Trek is more complicated and maybe deeper than any of the, it's greater than the sum of its parts. I agree completely. That, that there is a way that it's saying think about the complexity uh, and talk and talk. And the deeper we get into Kirk and Spock and the other characters, the more complicated they become, the more human they become and the more we have to learn from. And I think this to me, I, I feel like on a lot of levels, this idea of the connective tissue between the episodes is the enduring power of Star Trek. It isn't one great episode or another great episode or a great moment. They're all there. It's, how they all work together, and that is what builds the culture that you and I are a part of. But, but you know, I, and, I, and I agree with that. And I think that individually, these episodes achieve that. But collectively, the yeah. whole is greater than the sum of its parts. And seeing the whole, like what we've been doing 
making the whole first season feel like like a complete arc yeah. versus just episode episode standalone standalone um i think that it is the perspective of seeing star trek in a whole new way like this but also the overall sort of message you know it's all about communication and empathy and understanding and compassion and that and, is a and collective thinking. Uh, right thinking and it's 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 a collective thing that you get when you look at the especially since we're nearing the end of the first season and we can look at the first season as a whole complete body of work yeah and as, and 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 also a complete body of work that we've evolved to this point because the earlier episodes were not like this but the later episodes after gene coon really took over and really started to make his presence known by writing his own original stories yeah. or rewriting ex extensively the other writers he is putting all of those messages those jonathan swift types of allegories and metaphors into these episodes where the whole really is greater than some of the parts but it was not always it was not seen that way because star trek was always individual standalone right. episodes um so we talked a lot about errand of mercy and we would love to hear your thoughts we had some questions that we brought up they're going to be up on our facebook page we'd love to hear your comments on this incredible episode of television and uh you could also reach us on twitter at enter incidents on instagram at enterprise incidents you can subscribe to the show at all the usual places apple Podcasts. please leave your reviews on apple Podcasts. i can't stress enough how important they are for people to discover the show Leave your comments on YouTube if that's where you listen to the show. Of course, you can also subscribe on Spotify and a whole bunch of other places. You can find me on Twitter at SR Morris, on Instagram at SR Morris One. And I plugged my Great White Shark show. So that's Great White Shark Beyond the Cage of Fear. That's on Amazon available right now. Scott, how would people find you? Okay, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Movie Mance. And like Steve said, I just want to echo how important it is that you leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts. And of course, make sure you comment in the comment section if you are listening to Enterprise Incidents on our YouTube page. Also, you know, make sure you check out our Facebook page because we do post a lot of provocative questions that we raise here on the show for you to comment on on our Facebook page. And for everyone who has been commenting, we appreciate your feedback and we very, very much appreciate your support. And on that level, because we are celebrating now the 55th anniversary of Star Trek, in a way, that maybe no one else has done before, make sure you share Enterprise Incidents with other Star Trek fans, both diehard and casual. And Steve, we have talked about how we are nearing the end of the first season. I mean, I can't believe we are almost at that point. And I also can't believe that we are at the point where we are ready to take on the greatest Star Trek episode of them all, as I like to call it, the Citizen Kane of Star Trek episodes, because on the next episode of Enterprise Incidents, we are doing our deep, and I mean very deep dive on the greatest of them all, the city on the edge of forever. Yes, we are at that point on Enterprise Incidents. So make sure you join us on the next episode of Enterprise Incidents. And until then, keep going boldly. <laughs>